everybody, and welcome back to Motorcycles and Podcakes, the official podcast of Motorcycles and Pancakes. I got to tell you, today is, uh, well... The first real guest is what I'm going to say here. We have Patrick Hahn of Team Oregon with us, and we're going to dig into him a little bit and find out exactly what is Team Oregon and uh, see how this guy started and his riding career and everything like that. So, Pat, welcome to Motorcycles and Podcakes. How you doing, man? Hey, good. Thanks, Ian. I'm uh, up early, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. It is. This is by far the earliest podcast I've ever done. <laughs> Nice. Yes, and our correspondence back and forth when we were actually planning this, you you reached out at 9 a.m. and I was like, well, I'm up early, let's go, because all the other ones are like nighttime. Yeah, the, the timing is good today. I'm going to, I've got uh, an instructor, uh, an instructor riding clinic happening this afternoon, and so they're doing uh, like high-speed braking practice, and so I'm going up just to support, to throw a few cones, but I'm going to take a bunch of pictures of these instructors so they get cool hero shots of themselves when they ride. Oh, I like that. Yeah. That is very cool. So you kind of let it out a little bit. You are an instructor. Yes. And uh, before we get to that, let's start back in the beginning. Like, are you an Oregon native? Where were you born? Where'd you grow up? My, my background is in the Midwest. Okay. And so I, uh, I, grew up, I grew up in that area, so I spent about the first 20 years of my life in Chicago, in Northern Illinois. Uh And then, and then the next 20 I spent in Minneapolis. Oh, and so, and so that's where, that's where I was kind of born and raised. And then the, uh, the team Oregon job popped up and I'd always wanted to, I had never been interested in moving West, so to speak, but I've always been curious about Oregon Mm -hmm. and, uh, and they convinced me a trip out in the wintertime, no icy sidewalks, lots of sunshine. Uh, so that that convinced me. So I've been out here for twelve years now. Lots of sun, sunshine in Oregon, huh? I was in surprised. <laughs> yeah, I was surprised. It was it was February, and we yeah. get some we get some happy like in the in the valley down in down in Corvallis is where I live. Okay, yeah. And uh, we actually get a fair amount of fair amount of sunshine in the wintertime. Uh, it's okay. not it's not as rainy as as it is up here. I think. Eh, yeah, we get that Columbia River and yeah, that, and yeah, yeah. the Columbia Basin comes right into yep. it. So uh, moving back to like you said in um, in Chicago, is that about the time you were starting to get into motorcycles when you were growing up? Was there a moment where you were like, "Oh, hey, these little two wheel yeah. things are pretty rad"? It was uh, it was hair raising. Yeah, I decided I decided at the age of about twenty. So I was living I was living in downtown Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I decided that riding motorcycles was a cool way to meet girls, right? <laughs> and so, so I started riding, and I used I used my bike mostly for commuting. I rode it back and forth to work, mm-hmm. but I learned to ride. I taught myself living downtown Chicago and riding out to the suburbs and back every day. So it was about forty minutes on on Chicago streets back yeah. and forth, and so that was at the at the very least kind of a kind of a school of hard knocks there are a lot of uh a lot of hazards there the traffic there is really aggressive and yeah. fast and those roads aren't they're not nearly as nice as the roads out here on the west coast that's so it was trial by fire that's kind of heavy in the in the in the midwest roads they're just oh my lord they are they are bumpy yeah. and gravelly and a smooth a smooth road is really rare and when you find one it just goes dead straight Right. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. So when you started thinking like, hey, motorcycles, maybe meet some girls, you know, were you thinking like, uh, 
like a Harley or did you have a, a type of bike in mind or are you just like, hmm, I just want to start looking? Yeah, my, my friends rode cruisers. And so, so they had, uh, they were riding Magnas, early 80s Magnas. And so that's the only motorcycle that I really understood at the time. And so that's what I went for. And so I started off with a V45 Magna, the 750. Uh, and that's a, that's a V4. It's a pretty big bike for a yeah. beginner, pretty powerful for a beginner. And right. then, and then that, uh, that opportunity kind of faded. I was just borrowing that motorcycle, so to speak. And then I wound up buying a, a 920 Virago, so a V-twin, much more, much more manageable, uh, not, nearly as, not nearly as heavy, but, you know, a quirky bike at the very least. It was one of the early bikes that had, like, this digital instrument panel yeah. that routinely failed, right? And, <laughs> right? and you'd be riding along at 50 miles an hour, and all of a sudden the bike shuts off. There's no power, right? There's no engine, right? And you have to pound on the pound on the on the gauges to get them to come back to life. And uh, anyway, so that was that was what I started with was cruisers, and then eventually, um, I decided that, or I discovered that maybe it wasn't it wasn't the tool that I needed at that time. Uh, you know, I, I just, it wasn't important anymore to meet girls. I was having fun riding, and I really enjoyed using it for commuting. It made the trip back and forth to work really enjoyable. So, at that point, I started looking for something smaller. Okay, right? and then and then graduated. I moved to uh, to five hundred interceptors, and I had I had two of them kind of back to back. So it's similar engine configuration. Of, it's a it's a V four, you know, but those were those were five hundreds, and they're more of in a sport bike right. package. Yeah, and so had a couple of those uh, in the nineties, and then uh, in two thousand, I moved up to a, a VFR, the eight hundred. And I had two of those over the next twenty years. I had two VFRs, and then uh, have 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 ditched those. I got, frankly, I just got a little too old for that riding position. It was a little hard on my lower back, and so now I'm right. now I ride a, a DRZ four hundred. Oh, there you go. And so that's and still it's you know it's a good commuter bike. Yeah. Right, and that's that's what I like most about most about riding is it's a nice way it's a nice way to commute. I remember uh, growing up seeing those interceptors and always being like, oh, I want one of those. Oh, that's my bike. Yeah, I always just dreamed about that. That or a ninja. Yep you know? the uh, the five hundreds they looked they looked really cool, but they were not very powerful. They uh, were not anything like the ninjas, right? Or the or the bigger or the bigger VFRs. The the five hundred. I love to say it. Uh, sure, it it looks skinny, but boy, is it slow. <laughs> of course, my first bike was a ninja. It was a ZX six. Uh huh. That was like. That's a handful. That was my first road bike. Yeah. You know, I had dirt bikes before, but when I got into that, I was just like, I didn't have it very long and I wrecked it. And admittedly, you know, it, it was too much of a bike for my riding capabilities at that time. Yeah. I just got way over my head on that thing. But, you know, you're 19, you're invincible. Yep. Whatever, let's get it. Understood. Mm-hmm. That's, so, I mean, it's, it's too much, that's too much bike even for some experienced riders, that's a, that's a, that's a powerful, that's a, I mean, that's a, that's a race bike yeah. in street clothes. Right. Yeah. Well said. Absolutely. So moving back. So when you started riding and you said you did a lot of commuting, but was there other just, it's a weekend. I just want to bounce out and just go for a ride. I just want to see, well, not too many mountains over there, but hills yeah. or not. And just, and with, with that, was there a moment 
where you're riding, you're like, oh, this is much more than just riding a motorcycle now. Now I'm in love with the riding. You know what what made that um what what prompted that transition to being sort of a a commuter and using it as a practical tool to being an enthusiast and really starting to dig into it was I read Keith Code's book uh Twist of the Wrist, right, which is ostensibly that's a book about high performance riding. I mean his his aim at the time, especially in the in the in the 80s and the early 90s, his aim really um, personally was sort of track riding and racing and stuff like that. But the principles in that book, Twist of the Wrist, the principles were easily applied to street riding because they they're really about risk management and traction management and motorcycle control. And so I tried a few of the techniques in the book, counter steering. I didn't know what counter steering was right and they try them wow that works right and he has uh one of the most memorable parts of his of his book was his his traction his ten dollar bill traction analogy um and that that's where he says you have imagine so you hear you have a limited amount of traction to deal with on a two-wheel vehicle on any vehicle but a two-wheel it's it's much more uh it's much more unforgiving when you when you make a mistake and he says you've got ten imagine you have ten dollars worth of traction and so if you use $5 worth for braking, you only have $5 worth left to do anything else, like turn or, or, or lean or whatever. Uh, and so that, that analogy really helps help me understand kind of how to manage, how to manage traction and stability. Because, you, you know, when you're, when you're new, you don't, know what, you don't know exactly what's going on. You don't right. know how this bike is feeding back to you a little bit. Or you, can, or at least you can't, um, you can't describe it, or you can't, you can't characterize like what's the bike doing? It's doing something that doesn't feel good, right? My body is telling me this is wrong, right? But I didn't know how to, didn't know how to characterize it, and so some of those concepts in that book um, kind of helped me understand what the what the limits are of motorcycle motorcycle dynamics, and uh, and so that kind of like wow, this is really cool. There's there's more to learn about this, and you can get better at it right i was most of us when we first start riding like that we are we're operating the motorcycle right we know how to work the controls we know how to use the clutch and shift and balance and stuff like that we're operating not everybody actually learns to ride most many riders get stuck get stuck only being able to operate the bike and so what that book and then other subsequent books did was like okay here's Here's how you actually ride this thing. Here's how you manage it and control it and make it work for you and work work together with it. And then what happens is getting better at riding, it makes it more enjoyable, right? It makes it more fun. You feel more in control and you're able to kind of open your mind and open your heart up a little bit to the to all the possibilities out there, right? It's not... Right. not not just for commuting. A curvy road doesn't have to be a scary thing. It can actually be fun if you know how to control the bike in a corner, right? And Absolutely, yeah. I uh, I was on a on a trip and you, the curvy road. I went down uh, Highway 12, I believe it is, from Torrey, Utah, down towards um, Zion National Park. Yep, Bryce Canyon area. 
and that's uh, that's the Escalante, the National yeah, Monument. The staircase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I turned on that road, and they had one of those construction reader boards that said "Windy Road for next hundred miles." And as a motorcycle guy, you're just like, "Yes, yes, <laughs> we're so here." That is awesome. So I think uh, once we talking about cornering, I uh, I learned from one of my dad's friends who took a course, the advanced riding course, a few times. And uh, we were out riding with him, my dad and I, and we stopped for lunch. And he was like, you guys corner wrong. I was like, um, what? So he gets the napkin out and he starts drawing these corners. And we were taking it almost like a race car, just cutting way in. And like, oh, this is fun. And I think 90% of the people do that. And then he was like, no, stay wide, stay wide, stay wide. Now you can see, okay, now cut. Right. That changed my riding style immensely just off that little tiny napkin drawing that uh-huh. Ken did. It was it's kind of a profound moment, which actually at that moment I was already um, changed everything from a little bit reckless to all the gear all the time to wanting to learn more about writing to how do I implicate or implement everything that I'm just now learning and everything. So I think what you do and what Team Oregon is doing is is pretty awesome for, for teaching. And how did you become interested in, I want to take my riding and my adventures as a motorcyclist and kind of, I want to do more. Was it something that you were just like, I need to learn to be a better writer? Or were you like, I want to become an instructor? You know what it was? Um, <clears throat> I had a friend uh, who crashed, and he got hurt really bad. And I was I was still very, very raw and new. I think I was still 20 years old at the time. And I was, I was that dumb kid downtown Chicago with no riding gear, no helmet, no skills, no plan or whatever, and I just, you know, I felt cool. I'm 20 years old. It's like, what, you're going to live forever, right? And then... Invincible. Yeah, yeah. and then my my very good friend uh, with the 1100 Magna, the V65 Magna. That's a big um, He got, yeah, he got he got tangled up in a, in a traffic incident, and he got hurt really bad. And he was doing the same thing I was. No gear, no plan, no skills, right? Mm-hmm. And... He was in a coma for about, oh, I want to say it was 10 or 11 days. And, uh, and when, he, when, he came, when he came back, I mean, he came back, he's fine. He doesn't ride anymore. He's, he's, he's fine now. But when he came back, and he's still to this day, he says, there was nothing I could do. And that's what he said right away when, when I talked to him after that crash. There was nothing I could do. And it was a very, very typical intersection type of crash where uh, other car driver pulled out in front of him, tried to turn in front of him, and he crashed into the car, right? Right. And he says there's nothing he could do. It was all her fault for pulling out in front of him. And I'm like, I know in my heart that's not true. There was something that he could do. Uh, but I didn't know what that was, right? But I, just, I knew instinctively that what he's saying is incorrect. And mm-hmm. so that's the light bulb. The light bulb that went on over your head when your friend or your dad's friend 
was giving you advice about how to how to take a corner on a motorcycle. The light bulb went on over my head at that point. It's like there's way more to know about this. I just don't know what it is. So I went to try to find it. And again, I started with I started with books. Like I I learn by reading. That's my favorite way to learn. And so then I went to David Huff's first book, Proficient Motorcycling, and I devoured that. I'm like, this is what I'm looking for. This is all the strategies, all the information that a rider could use to not have to fall into that trap that my friend fell into, right? Yeah. Um, how to handle the bike, but also awareness of what the hazards are. Uh, like, for example, other drivers, sleepy other drivers, distracted other drivers, intersections, tight uh, tight situations. This was, he, he crashed in Phoenix on Van Buren Avenue on a 30-mile-an-hour street. Um, and so that's what, that's what got me started. I'm like, okay, so now I've decided, I didn't decide purposefully, but I decided sort of unconsciously, I want to learn more about motorcycle safety than anybody I know. And, and I never, I never articulated that to myself or whatever. I, I do it now. So maybe I'm rationalizing my, my career choice or whatever, but um, but that's what I did. And so I, I read that book, and then I'm reading magazine articles, and I really got the, you know, got the urge. Really, I was passionate about, about safety, about riding better so you don't, have to, you don't have to get hurt, right? You don't, have to, you don't have to leave this world early, so to speak. <coughs> so, so that experience and that knowledge led me to recognize that oh there's a there's a class I can take to go learn to ride better to learn from a professional and so I got this this image in my head of the motorcycle safety instructor just the guy with the big beard <laughs> grizzled voice and everything right yeah and I want to I want to take that class that's what I want to do and so I was still living in Illinois at the time and in Illinois the 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 course was free um, okay. You pay like a $20 deposit, and then you get it back when you show up for class. It's like they got a great, great program there. And so I went to sign up, and this was in 1990 or so. Okay. Um, 33 years ago. No, 27, anyway. Um, and the wait was eight months. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like uh, it, it, I, I was looking in the – it was either spring or summer, and the, mm-hmm. the earliest course was like the following – the following spring, it was it was ridiculous, and so like oh, I'm not I'm not going to do I'm not going to wait. So I just I just blew it off, skipped it, and uh, the next year, I went back and I tried to look again early in the spring, see if I can get it. Still, the wait was six months long, and I had no patience for that. I'm 21 years old. I've had no patience for anything, let alone right. let alone putting down <laughs> my hard-earned twenty dollars right right to to get a spot in this course. So I I skipped it again. Sure, and then. Um, and then shortly after that, I had relocated. I was living in I was living in Minnesota, instead. So I'm living in in Minneapolis, and I still want to take this course. I really I need this. This is like this is the thing with motorcycle safety that I haven't done yet. And I'm talking about the basic course, right? I don't I don't have any any knowledge at all other than what I've read. And the uh, the wait time uh, at that point in Minnesota was about three months. So I'm like. Okay, I can I can rationalize this, and it wasn't wasn't a free course anymore. It was you had to pay for it. I don't I remember what it was. It was 150 bucks or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
And so I finally did. So I signed up. So I'd been riding for five years at this point by the time I finally got to this place where I could sign up for the course and, and feel right about it. Um, so I went into this basic course as an experienced rider. <clears throat> I already knew how to ride the bike, or I, I should say I already knew how to operate the bike, and I knew quite a bit about riding. Um, but there were still things in the course, particularly um, braking and visual directional control, looking looking where you want to go with your with your eyes and your nose and your and your head that that sort of stuff and some of the cornering principles some of that stuff I was was new to me right so this mm -hmm. is cool. now, now I'm really learning right and so you know of course I'm an experienced writer so I you know I aced the test and I was super enthusiastic you know and the, and the instructors recognize that they're like look you uh, have a really good attitude you should consider becoming an instructor and I was like, I was floored because the instructors in my mind at that point, they're like, they're like gods, right? right. They are, yeah. they are the pinnacle of, of motorcycling safety. They are the, the, the pinnacle of, of good riding. I'm like, I'm, I'm just a kid. I'm 25 years. I can't, I, I can't go do that. But the, but the instructor, he, he stayed in touch with me and he kind of convinced me. It's like, no, you don't, you don't have to be an expert rider to do this. You have to um, be enthusiastic and you have to be coachable right you got to learn how to teach this course you got to learn how to teach others and so that's that's what got me started in this was really reflecting on my friend's crash and then wanting to do something i want to be better than that right i want to yeah. i want to make sure that that doesn't happen to me and i also want to now i want to share that with there's there's ways that i can help other folks not get tangled up in these easy-to-avoid traps that we encounter on the road on our motorcycles. Which and is so. numerous every time we go out and ride. Yep. You know, I, I've done that. I've, my crashes, the bad ones, have been, with the exception of one, have been off-road, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, doing the adventure riding stuff. And it's always one of those things, like your friend was like, oh, there's nothing I can do. And I think I'm more on the analytical mindset like, I know I screw up all the time, every day. It's fine. Yeah. But when something bad happens, I always want to go like, okay, what did I do? And so my last crash, um, I, I busted open my chin. And I don't want to tell the story on air because everybody already knows about it, you know. But um, chin just came wide open, and I was had my GoPro on. And so I was like, at the time, also coaching high school football. So I was like... I'm going to go home and I'm going to break down this video and <laughs> see exactly what happened. Yeah. I couldn't tell what happened. I know what happened, you know, yeah. but it was still like the same thing. I always want to know what I did wrong or if I'm riding behind somebody and they do something weird. I'm like, why did that just happen? Oh, okay. That car pulling out or whatever. And so it's always one of those things. Uh, I just, I always want to constantly learn from what I'm doing wrong. Mm -hmm. And then also kind of that thing, like I want to learn about what the other people are doing wrong to make me a better writer as well. So I actually took, um, <coughs> oh, I can't remember. It's been, it's been several years, but I went over here to Clackamas community and took a, the advanced course or whatever. They had the beginning course and then the other course over here. And then the actual advanced I think is over at Pat's Acres so um 
I took that other course and I went into it so open-minded of, I know how to ride. Boy, I want to learn something cool today. And it was, there was um, me and one other rider that were actually, I think a little bit more advanced than the rest of the class. And it was very quickly, the instructors kind of singled us out. And I think we were held to a different standard. And then they talked to us a little bit differently than everybody else. They would keep coming up to us. Okay. Try it this way this time, or really get your head around in mm-hmm. that voice, that booming voice. I can't remember his name. It was, get your head around. I was like, geez, yes, yep. sir. Yep. <laughs> you know, it's one of the best things, one of the best courses I've ever taken, actually. And um, one thing that I, I, I find interesting that I hear about is a lot of people take a class and get their endorsement. That's all the education that they do. And that is just so scary, you know, because like I said, the, the courses are right there and everything is point or painted on the ground. And so before I go on rides or something, it's very common for me to leave 20 minutes before I'm supposed to. I just zip over there, do some slow turns, you know, figure eights or emergency braking or swerving or something and just use what's painted. And it's kind of like the basketball guys going out and shooting lanes before they play the game, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of the same thing, kind yeah. of get comfortable on the bike again, and then, oh, time to go meet everybody. Yeah. Take off, you know? So I think it's pretty cool. Um, so you ended up being persuaded to move over here to Oregon. And so teaching, coaching, whatever terminology you want to use for what you do as an instructor, <clears throat> um, was there any difference in the curriculum, moving from Minnesota, from Minneapolis over here? Uh, Yes and no. Um, Persuaded is a really good, is a really good uh, way to describe it. We, Team Oregon, we had a a director for 33 years. He was the originator or the original director of the program. And he and I had gotten, we'd crossed paths a few places around the country and uh, a management position came up at Team Oregon, and he kind of had me in mind for it. And so he kind of you know, reached out, just kind of, you know, cultivated that relationship a little bit and made it really easy for me to decide uh, to come out. Now I'm forgetting what the, what the question... Oh, the, oh, the, the <laughs> curriculum differences. Yeah. And so, so one thing, the, the thing that's really unique about Oregon is... And this is back to our director. His name is Steve Garretts, and he's still, he still lives in Corvallis. I still see him from time to time. He's a friend and a mentor. Um, up until about 2001, the states, most every state, every state, I believe, that was teaching, that was conducting motorcycle training was using one curriculum uh, based on the Motorcycle Safety Foundation right there. And we were using the... Uh, what was called the, the RSS, Riding Street Skills Curriculum. And then they, uh, they, they changed in 2001, 2000 or 2001, they changed. They updated to uh, a more adult learning uh, type of format, right? And they, they okay. kind of, they, they, they softened, I think they softened the course a little bit. Particularly, they changed, they changed what was happening in the classroom, right? And Steve and I... We've always felt that like the most important work that we do is actually in the classroom. Uh, 
And so they, they took a look, Steve and his team at the time, they took a look at this new curriculum and they said, well, I appreciate you providing this, but I don't think this is better than the curriculum that we're using now, so we'd rather just keep using that if that's okay. And they said, no, that's not okay. You have to, you have to use this curriculum, and we're not going to support that one anymore. And he was, uh, he was adamant, no, we're going we're gonna to keep using this, right, the old one, the old MRC RSS, Motorcycle Rider Course, Riding and Street Skills, mm-hmm. and, um, and the new BRC, which is what most states are using now, or <coughs> evolutions of it. Uh, he's like, this is just not good enough, particularly the classroom. Right. It was, and so they're like, they wouldn't, they wouldn't support us. They wouldn't support Team Oregon to continue using the old curriculum. And so he's like, okay, then we are just going to design our own curriculum. And so Oregon was the first state to design its own motorcycle training course. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. And so it took, it took two, three years of, of development and then a lot of testing and pilot testing to get it dialed in. Um, but really um, decided decided that there are certain priorities that the Oregonians need to address that were not addressed as well in the other curriculum. So we developed one specifically for for Oregon riders, which is our we we call it called it basic rider training. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a beginner course. It's it's learn to ride. Um and then there's a shortened version of that course and we call it the intermediate course but really it's just a shortened basic course it's a it's a safety course for those who already know how to operate the bike right they just need to get the critical skills or maybe they need to get their get their license or whatever so that's what that's what those are and so the they are um the approach is very different uh between between oregon's program and then the the state programs that use the msf products and they both they both get students to about the same place um, with their physical skills and their knowledge. Um, and so it's, you know, this is just the way that Oregon has chosen to do it. And it's much more, it's much more old fashioned. It's not as, it's not as touchy feely. It's not as loosey goosey. It's a little bit more uh, structured yeah. and, and, and rigid and, what you discovered when you took your course about how the instructors might talk to you differently than they talk to other students, that's, that's kind of written into the instructions. It's kind of written into the cards, right? We've got every, every exercise, we've have, we have two to four things that what to coach, right? And mm-hmm. we, don't, we don't really go beyond those. We really, we really don't. If, if it's not on the cards, we don't coach a rider to do those things because... For example, the, the basic course has to be kind of one-size-fits-all, right? It's got to be yeah. somebody who is brand new, who doesn't even know the difference between the clutch and the brake lever, right? or somebody who's been riding for five years and they already know how to ride. We've got to incorporate all those people into the same class. And so the beginners, the instructors can tell who those are, right? And they, they just coach the very I'm just going to work on this bullet point right now. This is what I'm going to coach you now. But when you recognize you got an experienced writer that 
they've already got this down. Then you can move into the other, the more advanced coaching tips, right? You can help kind of refine the skill that they already have rather than developing the skill that they don't, that they don't have yet. And so that's what you experienced is, is very much programmed into the way instructors are taught as well. It's like we're, we, we try not to, we don't, we don't always succeed, but we try not to deviate from the script, so right. to speak. Um, I really appreciated that when, when they came in because, um, the kid, uh, I call him a kid. He was probably 30, you know, but he came from a motocross background and I mean, very, very skilled rider. Tall, skinny guy, kind of going bald early. Uh, I don't remember the going bald, but he was tall and skinny. Yeah. It might've been, might've been Joel Crawford, kind of a tall, he's like a motocross, uh, like an enduro racer, kind yeah. of a really tall. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So it, we were just, like I said, we were just kind of singled out and it was just kind of, I really appreciated the way that we were treated differently, you know, cause it's not an ego thing. You can kind of tell the our two our skill level is a little bit higher than the other people and then realizing they are coming to us to kind of push us and coach us differently you know i i really like that and it was like the they figured that out quick and then it was like the rest of the day was just it was a little bit different and then you know they would bring us up to the front and then they would okay we're going to do this first we're going to have you guys do it first so they kind of know more you know, yep. how to, how to do it and stuff. And I was just like, okay, th- this is kind of cool. And you're at the back of the line. And then one of the instructors would walk by and again, be like, all right, now like this. Right. You know? And then he would go over uh-huh. and say, Cones up or something. I was like, yeah, I love this. I had a great day that day. Yeah. 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 That's a, that's a joy when you have a, you have a, especially a beginner class uh, and you have a, an experienced writer, they, you, you can use them to help you set the example for the other students. Cause if the first student goes around and, bollocks is the path of travel, right? Everybody behind that person is going to do the same thing. But if the first right. person does it right and does it well, everybody, everybody will mimic that. And that makes, that makes the instructor's job easier. The, uh, one of the reasons, or I guess an analogy that we use to, to describe to instructors why they have to limit their speech really, it's, it's about limiting the number of words that come out of their mouth on the range is because students all come to us. You've got to, you've got to, we call it a whiteboard. Mm-hmm. Like you've got, you've got a certain amount of information that you are able to take in on that, on that day. Beginners, their whiteboard is blank, and within the first hour, it is filled up. They can't take any more information or, or, or very little, right? They need time to practice, and they need time to process to kind of wipe some of those things off their whiteboard to make room for more. And so our strategy behind minimizing the minimizing the coaching and just sticking to the bullet points is because we, we can't we can't overload them right if we overload right. them then they're not learning anything right and they so get we just frustrated. yeah mm-hmm. yeah and they so we just stick to the basics until they've got it dialed in right and then we start then we start building up to that and but if you get an experienced writer who's they've already got the basics dialed in they got room on their whiteboard okay now i want you to try it a little bit like this right and give you extra little extra coaching and so everybody everybody comes out of that class um with a basic minimum level of of skill but like you like you referred to you mentioned this earlier that the basic course alone is not enough right Uh, it's enough it's enough to get your your endorsement you get your motorcycle license it's enough 
that you can get out and start practicing on your own on the streets without without undue risk. You know enough to get started and start practicing without adult supervision on a closed parking lot, you know, at 15 miles an hour. Yeah. Um, but the reality is, is that even if you ace that class, you're still just demonstrating basic skills, right? Yeah. And basic skills are great, but they are not, um, philosophically, they're not enough to protect you in every situation that you can encounter, right? And so that's why, and now we have we have five different advanced courses, depending on what skill area a student wants to work on. Um, but we have, you know, a, a, a breaking, an advanced breaking clinic that we that we offer, and an advanced cornering clinic, and we do a precision maneuvering clinic, like the, uh, you know, like the motor cop drills, the slow oh, yeah. cone, low, low speed stuff. We do We do those because that's, we don't lose a lot of riders to, you know, to capsize type crashes, but it's really embarrassing and it's really meaningful to riders when they when they drop their bike in, in the garage, you know, or at a gas station or something like that. Um, and so we we offer these courses really because, okay, basic is great, but really to be prepared for any situation, you need to understand braking from higher speeds yeah. right? and not 15 miles an hour. Like, mm -hmm. So today, the, the course that we're going to do for instructors, we're hoping to get them up to 40 to 45 miles an hour. And when you brake hard at higher speeds, your bike feeds back to you differently, right? You have more time to observe and process the information that your bike is giving you, like through the handlebars, for example. And so that's... That's a great learning experience for the instructors because they are in the, they're in the role of, of teaching most of the time. But then we get them into a situation where they have to, they have to perform at a much higher speed, right? There's a little anxiety. Um, there's, a little, there's a little bit of the unknown, right? So they get to kind of step into the role of being a student again. We take one of our most experienced instructors, and she's the one who's going to guide them through these advanced braking techniques today. And it's all about really getting your body and your mind and your heart prepared for anything that the road can throw at you. And it requires, it re requires more than just the basic course. I really am interested in something like that. Absolutely. I think, uh, <clears throat> I think one thing that gets in the way of a lot of riders is ego, right? I think a lot of people are like, well, I already know how to ride. I don't want to take a stupid class. I don't want to waste a Saturday taking a class. You know, but the, the skills that you learn, it might be that one little thing you can put in your toolbox, you know, and, and it could just save you from a catastrophe moment, you know, whether it's visual or just the skill set of, like you said, the, the heavy braking, because your bike definitely reacts differently at higher speeds. That inertia trying to stop the compression down on your forks and everything. And in fact, my first accident on the on that ninja it was an emergency braking situation i was way too heavy on the front brake i didn't practice at all i didn't know what was going on and that bike it was just out of control and because of me i didn't have the skill set to keep it there you know and when i got on that brakes that back end came up a little bit went about 90 degrees when it came down and just poof, yeah. sent me flying you know and it was like i think about that a lot actually um 
it's one of those moments like, what could have I done different? And it's so far back, you know. I mean, it was like almost 30 years ago. But learning that is just, or, or looking back at it, it's just, what can I learn from this? What could have I done differently? And it's so many things are just in play right there. It's like, I mean, I totally panic braked. Yeah. And that, that was the worst thing I could have done. Yep. I, instead of the two fingers that I commonly use now, I think I was full on like, <laughs> oh, crap. Yep. You know, I just, one thing, I, I just don't want to be in that situation again. You know, now I have an Africa Twin 1100. It's a bigger bike. It's a heavier bike. You know, that thing's tipped over 100 times already, but that's little like, oh, oh, oh. Capsize. Yeah. yeah, totally, yeah. totally. And it's all off-road, but... Well, not all the time. There might have been a gas station incident once yeah. here pretty soon. Yeah. I don't know. Um. No. Mistakes <laughs> off-road, they don't count, right? Mistakes in right. training, they don't count. On the track, they don't count. Really, off-road, adventure riding, it's like it's it's just good, clean fun. And part I think part of it is that, yeah, you're, you're, if you're going to have the right amount of fun, you're going to fall down once in a while. Oh, like absolutely. I have I, to. Even, even our, best, our best instructor or one of our – I'm sure – our best instructor, but one of our best instructors, one of our top instructors. I think we're talking about the same guy. Yeah, uh, we sent him to an adventure training course um, out in out in Bend last year, and even he wound up literally upside down at one point, right? Yeah, because you know you you, you just you're you're pushing your boundaries, right? And you got you got to find out, right? And mm-hmm. fortunately, you know, with off road, you know trail riding, you know, or, or adventure riding. Fortunately, when you make mistakes, you're not making a mistake with another moving vehicle, right? You're not yeah. running wide in a 60-mile-an-hour corner into the rocks, right? It's like it's – you get bumped up, you bruise, you bruise, and, and you get banged up a little bit, but you, but you can learn from it, right? And it's not nearly as – off-road and adventure riding is, is not nearly as dramatic of an outcome in a crash as, as street riding can be. Well, that goes back to my crash. It was interesting, uh-huh. you know. Just a, a real quick preface of it. I um, I was not going fast, you know. I was on the left side of the track on a two-track, a little, like, little mud puddle, a little pothole, whatever, just was really off camber. So I hit that, and you give it a little bit of throttle to keep that front end up, and I hit that with the rear tire, and it just easily put me in the right track. Had a... Um, um, a tree branch coming out, you know, and then there was another alder behind it. So I had this little light fluffy stuff with a actual, like a little tree behind it. So it just clipped the, you know, my handlebar and it just flipped me like uh-huh. this right into the bushes and the GoPro mount that I had, it caught a limb. And when it went down, it flipped it underneath my helmet and it, had, it was like a Y and the bottom part of the Y had a little point on it. Oh. So that point got rotated under my helmet into my chin and literally just exploded my chin wide open. Oh, wow. I learned a new term. It's called communicating when you can put water here in your lip and swish it around and it comes out your chin. It was actually kind of a horrific thing, but it was like so slow, so yeah. slow, but it was yeah. just massive. But, you know, those things happen off-road, but, again, the safety aspect we're talking about today is more – the on-road stuff. Yeah. That's 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 my area of expertise. Yeah. I'm not I'm not an off-road guy. Yeah. So, <clears throat> one thing that I also learned through Ken and started talking about on that day of cornering 
you know, I was already like, I've already been down a couple times, um, learning from those situations. I was already all the gear all the time. And man, I was down at, with some friends. We went to an event last night at SW Mototech and we came back and we stopped by Oregon city here. We have some food carts down at the bottom of the hill. And it always scares me. I, I don't know if it's the rider, the dad in me or what, but I saw this young kid, you know, with his, with his cheap helmet and a t-shirt, fanny pack, shorts, and flip-flops. Yeah. I'm just like, oh, dude. I just want to go up and hug him and be like, <laughs> I want you to go, de- you know, Google degloving, you know, or something. And right. just get that horrific visual where you're like, no. Yeah. Oh, but you can't do that. Everybody has to make their own choices. But, you know, I was already all the gear all the time. I was already trying to learn. I'm already trying to expand my my knowledge, you know, and again, sometimes I make a mistake and I'm like, why did I do that? What were the mechanics involved in it? And on that day where Ken was like, Hey, you know, you're taking this corner wrong. He was like trail breaking. I was like, what is this term you speak of? <laughs> you know, I was like, what is trail breaking? Yeah. You know, so I, I took a deep dive. YouTube is your friend. And I, I took a deep dive. And in fact, I went back up here to the course and I just started riding around one of those courses one day trying to like, feel what it felt like and my dad was really talking about it and i know for a fact twice i came around a corner too hot trail braked and was just fine Mm -hmm. and as i came out of that corner i was like dude if i didn't know how to do that that would have been bad yeah yeah that's a that's a skill that we we do not teach beginners like like i said yeah like i said they don't know the difference we have to assume they don't know the difference between Mm -hmm. the brake and the clutch right but being able to slow your bike mid-turn is a critical skill that uh, that every rider needs to know. Some people refer to it as trail braking. Um, other people use the term trail braking for other other techniques or whatever. But it sounds like what you're describing is really sometimes you need to scrub off speed while you're leaned over in a curve, right? Right. Yeah. And um, and so yeah, that's a that is a critical skill that that every rider needs to know because. It happens to all of us. Sometimes, sometimes we we enter a turn too hot. We're unprepared. We are distracted, or it's tighter than we thought it would be. Yeah. Or whatever. Maybe it's you know, maybe it's wet. Maybe there's something that's spilled or whatever. But we need we need to be able to do that. And so, fortunately, we do we do address that in some of our advanced training courses. Like we we understand that riders need to know how to do this. And that would be uh, the Vance cornering course. Uh, really, actually, the, the quickest way, the, the, the braking clinic that we're doing today is one where we, we, we break in a lean, really, is what, is what it is, breaking in a lean. That, is, is, it, is that kind of the proper term for it, rather um, trail breaking or breaking in a lean? You know, it's, it's a good enough term. You can, you can call it trail breaking, um, but what maybe what you mean by it is different from what somebody else means okay. by it. And so yeah. I would say, I would, I, would, I would refer to it as breaking in a lean. And okay. our, the course, actually, the, one of the courses that we teach here right at, at um, Clackamas Community College is called Road Riding Tactics. And one of the exercises is devoted specifically to breaking in a lean and learning how to, really, because the, the trick is, is that you can break in a lean all you want. You just have to do it uh, smoothly, right? If you are mm. abrupt with your brakes, that's when, that's when you get into trouble. And so we teach riders how to apply the brakes smoothly and gradually 
when leaned over. Right. Right. And that's just, that's not something we can teach beginners because no. they are, most of them could probably do it, but one in 12, we have 12 people per class, one in 12 is going to be too abrupt on that break in a lean, and then they're going to get hurt. Right. Just not dissimilar to what you experienced early on with the ZX6. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of discussion about, about trail breaking, but but really what you're what you're describing is just is simple breaking in a lean breaking in a lean i like that terminology a little bit better cuz especially i wasn't sure cuz when i looked it up on youtube at first it was like front break and then some guys were doing the back break and i was like okay i mean which one is it you know yeah. so the rear break didn't make sense to me yeah you know it's like that seems like it would just yeah kind of slide out if it locked up or something you know it's we we have a we have a kind of a terminology a terminology problem with it. So whenever this comes up, and mm-hmm. it, it comes up a lot, right? We, we first, we have to stop. We have to spend a few minutes. Somebody asks a question. Hey, I want to, what, what about trail breaking? How does that fit in here? And we have to stop and spend a few minutes. Like, oh, what do you mean by trail breaking? What, what actions or technique uh, are, you, are you asking about? Because some people call it like, like what you do, just trying to slow in the middle of a curve. Other riders use a technique to go faster through turns, particularly on like a track, uh, a yeah. track day or a racetrack setting. Uh, yet still other riders, like, like police motor officers, they use the term to describe um, riding the rear brake during really slow maneuvers, right, to, mm-hmm. to um, add to stability. If you're, if you're feathering the clutch and you're revving the throttle a little bit and you're working it against the rear brake, the motorcycle can be more stable. That's one of the, the techniques that we work on in the precision maneuvering clinic, for example. So there's, those are just three examples of the different ways people could talk about trail braking. So we, okay. have, to, we have to like, all right, let's figure out, let's, let's define what we're talking about first, and then we'll decide what we need to know about it. That, uh, yeah, that makes more sense. Yeah. Because I didn't know about the, the police officers using the rear huh? brake like that too. Yeah. Uh, you were yeah. saying that, I'm like, yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Uh-huh. Yeah. Watching those guys in those cone courses, holy moly. <laughs> it's uh, it's a great deal of fun. It really is. The first time I uh, I took I, I took a course like that, it's, it's very similar to the one that we're doing here in Oregon now, but I took one in Minnesota about 14 years ago, 13 years ago. Mm-hmm. That was the best day of riding I had that year. It was so fun. I fell over a couple times, right? You just laugh. You just pick your bike up. Because of you're, course. You're falling over at one mile an hour, right? And you're all geared up, right? Yeah. And, uh, but it was just the, the ability and the confidence to manage that big, heavy machine at low, low speeds when it feels really tippy and unstable is incredible. And, uh, and you can keep, you can keep working at it and working at it. And all of a sudden you can, you know, imagine like a two lane road with, with no, no shoulder or anything is probably 28 feet wide. It's like after a couple hours in that class, you could do a U-turn on that road. No problem. Right. Right. Just little two lane, right. Just, just flip it around and go the other way. Cause we miss turns all the time on roads like that. Right. You just yeah. go blaze. Oh, <laughs> there it was. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so you you can't go all the way up to the next intersection, right? Not on not on a little forest road that doesn't have one, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah. And so uh and so that's that's a really that's a really fun cool skill to figure out too. And and um trail braking is one way to describe the way they use that rear brake. Sometimes we call it feathering the rear brake or riding riding the rear brake. But either way, um 
those are three examples of that or three terms for that. Well, just so you know, if you're up at Clackamas Community College and you see some guy in an Africa twin doing something and scratching his head, that's me doing that technique. I, I'm very uh-huh. curious to see how that uh-huh. works, you know. Well, let me um, – I'll tell you, you can go practice this – well, not this afternoon because there's a class there this afternoon. I usually um, go – if if I am, uh, yeah. go up there. It's, a, it's always after the class mm-hmm. or so I've been ran off before when they're getting to the class and getting yeah. set up. I'm like – Yep. I'm just here for a couple yep. minutes. Yep. You know. Yep. And, and we, uh, we, uh, the instructors, we're, we're not, we're not supposed to use those ranges other than for classes, right? But we're not, yeah. we're not policing them or whatever. And I think, I think that the folks at the college, I think they understand that the riders who took the course there, they're part of their community too, and they come back and they want to get extra practice. And I, I think that the security guards there, and I think the the, the staff at the college, I think they really they really tolerate people using the range, you know, outside of outside of training hours. I can actually uh, attest to that. Um, I was up there not all that long ago, and I was doing from a dead stop, and I was going as fast as I could. You know, I was probably hitting maybe thirty ish miles an hour and i was doing the emergency braking and seeing how far i was going it's all uh-huh. measured out uh-huh. you know so I, w- I was up there and so my bike you know it's got aftermarket exhaust on it so it's like what what you know and then i noticed after a couple minutes that security actually came by kind of slow and then didn't come into that parking lot area this is the one underneath the power lines Went out to the main road going around and just kind of looked at me, and then he waved and just kept on going. I was like, yeah. as I, at first I was like, yeah. is he thinking I'm out here being a hooligan or something, yeah. you know? But yeah. I can attest, I think they're totally fine as long as, long as nobody's parked in there right? and it, it's wide open, which yeah. it generally is. Yeah. You know, I think it's... I think it's yeah. fine to go up yeah. there. Yeah, they probably, they probably thought you were, you were an instructor practicing your demo skills. So oh. <laughs> the colleges, the college partners, they are so good to us. The, the community colleges are really the only places in Oregon or in this country anymore where we can get big pieces of asphalt where you don't have light poles and curbs and stuff. You've got a place right. where you can actually do some training. So. Yeah, and two of them up there. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's pretty neat. So kind of looking forward to the change of seasons and things like that, um, we're we're kind of starting to teeter on the rainy season here mm-hmm. in Oregon. So you were talking originally that Oregon kind of constructed its own curriculum, you know, kind of Oregon specific, yeah. you know. So was there a weather aspect involved in this curriculum? Was it like, well, it does rain here, so we're going to probably be caught in the rain more here than California? Yeah, you know? not not as much as you would guess. Um, the way the way Team Oregon approaches that is more from the angle of what what is the what's the riding gear that you choose for that riding environment. Yeah. Right. Um, a lot of riders, I, I should say, a lot of people, when they, you, you think about riding, when you're not a rider, you think about riding, you think about sunshine and fresh air and blue skies and all this great stuff that we love about Oregon in the summer. And then the reality of spring and fall and winter hit, right? right yeah. And so we really emphasize, you got to think about, think about what you're wearing. There's, there's, there's a couple different things that are happening 
uh, particularly during the transitions, particularly during fall. Uh, but we, we're losing daylight and we're losing heat. And, you know, this morning is a good example. It's really cool in the morning, but it's going to be plenty warm this afternoon, right? And, yeah. and a hoodie isn't necessarily the garment that's going to be the best one for you in both of those situations, particularly if, if it's going to rain. Um, and so really that's, that's what we look at. It's like, let's think about, let's think about what the daylight means. And then let's think about what the, the temperature and, and the rain means. And so, for example, it's getting light out later now and it's getting dark out earlier. Right. Right. And so if you use your bike to commute to work, you got to think, well, what, what color, what, am I going to be caught in, in dusk, you know, or in the dark and what color do I want to choose to wear? You know, the traditional, the traditional color for motorcyclists is not the one that's most visible right. uh, at dusk and dawn and, and nighttime. And so you think about what kind of, what kind of upper body clothing can I wear? And that's really jacket and that's helmet. What, what could I wear that's going to make me more visible? Right. And mm-hmm. so, uh, for example, like a, like a white or a silver or yellow, helmet is much more visible than a darker color like blue or burgundy or black or gray right, right? and so you, yeah. so you can think about that and that's the helmet's the highest point on your body right it's like probably the the thing that most everybody can see most easily when you uh when you use that so that's that's one example you know and a lot of a lot of the cool really the good looking motorcycle gear anymore comes with um high vis accents right you know? yeah bright yellow or bright orange or bright green accents. And it also comes with sort of retro reflective um, panels or piping that, that will help, help you stand out at low light levels. And then at night too, like retro reflective stickers on your helmet and retro reflective panels on your, on your, on your bike and on your, on your jacket, your upper body, the higher parts of your body. Those really help you get noticed um, when, the, when the light levels are low. The uh, the other thing, the kind of the sneaky thing that happens in fall uh, and spring, uh, there's two of them. There's one, it's like school starts up again. Right, right? yeah. That, that happened this week where, where I live and everything changes, right? All of a sudden the traffic patterns are different than they have been for the last three months, right? You got to kind of relearn that and people... people, other people don't remember too. They forget that it's a school zone, so they slam on their brakes, you know, when they realize it, for example. And then there's, there's, just, there's kids in traffic and there's young kids driving cars to high school. And there, so there's everything, everything changes there. So you got to mentally, emotionally, you got to be a little bit better prepared for it's not going to be my usual trip. Right, right? yeah, It's yeah. going to be a little different for the, for the first week or two. Um, the way the daylight changes in morning and evening too, that, that can affect your visibility. Like if you have to take a road that goes straight, East West, that time right around September twenty first. Sometimes you're riding straight into the sun yep. or straight away from it, which changes. You know, if you're riding straight into the sun, it's very difficult for you to see what's going on. It's very difficult for the person behind you to see you and what's ahead of you. Whereas, mm-hmm. counter to that, like people who are oncoming, they can see you way better, right? Because the sun is at their the sun is at their back. So you got right. you got visibility issues to contend with, right? So. It, you may choose to 
take a different route, right, where you don't have to ride directly into the sun, or you set your space space cushion up a little bit differently, so you have a little bit more room for your eyes for your eyes to work. Um, that's that's actually a huge part, I think, is is that stopping distance or the space cushion. Yeah, you know, um, I'm a truck driver, so I've been doing that for a couple decades now. And it's it's kind of the same thing. You, you see a lot of hazards out on the road, and I think that that's actually made me a better rider to be able to recognize hazards, I think, a little bit quicker than the average person because it's, it's what I do. Mm-hmm. You know, so my eyes and my mind are trained a little bit different in that stopping distance, especially in the sunny conditions because, like you were saying, one direction, people don't see you because they're seeing sun. Right. Right. And all of a sudden they pull out and, oh, there was a motorcycle there. You know, and then the other way, you got your sunglasses on, but now you can't see them pulling out. Yeah. You know, so it's always slow down, more distance, more scanning back and forth. And then there's also, you know, you're, you're talking about, like, what you're going to wear. It's what what does your helmet have for me? Does it have what I call in some of the uh, the modular helmets have the little uh, part that comes down, like the little, I call mm-hmm. it the blast shield, yep. you know? Yeah. That goes down, it goes up, it goes down, it goes up, depending on the low level of the light, you know. And then I have this adventure helmet here, you know, with the visor on it so you can look down and shade the sun out. It's so different because you can be riding down a street and that sun's just blasting you. And then all of a sudden, now you're in the trees. Mm -hmm. Now your eyes are adjusting and now you're back in the sun. And now you're back in the, you know, it's just going back and forth. So you have to consciously be aware of... I'm about to enter a dark area. My eyes are going to need to adjust. You know, you have to think about that. You know, you got to be like, I need to slow down coming into that. But if I slow down, what's behind me, right? Right. So I want to make sure as I'm coming into that dark area, my eyes are going to adjust. Is my blast shield down or I have sunglasses on? How am I going to adapt to that? It's just this time of year with that low-level light, especially here too, because not only could it be going from the sun to the shade, it could be going sun behind the clouds and then back, mm-hmm. you know, just that time of year. Yeah. Low-level stuff is really odd to ride in sometimes. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes, it is. One of the, one of the tricks I use um, is if you pay attention to where your shadow is. If your shadow, you and your bike, is stretched way out ahead of you, that means the sun is at your back and anybody coming towards you cannot see you, yeah. when, you when you see that shadow. And so that's one, that's one little mnemonic that I use. But the other, one of the other things that we deal with this time of year, too, not, not right now, but in another month, month and a half, we're going to deal with daylight saving. Right. Right? And so then the clocks change. So not only does the daylight change, but everybody is off their sleep schedule, too. So if you're commuting in the morning, it's like it's different. People are, people are different for a few days. You know, like we kind of get, get used to that. Yeah, the whole fallback thing. Mm-hmm. I'm supposed to be asleep right now. Still. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's that's kind of a crazy thing, and hopefully we'll get rid of that one of these days. It's. Uh, I think. I think it's coming. Arizona. Arizona has yeah. always has always. Uh, they've, they've nixed it. Yeah. They've and, just. They do their own thing yeah. down there. I'll yeah. go down there for work, and I'm just like, what time is it? Did <laughs> we fall back or go forward with our time? What time is it here? <laughs> yeah. It's always fun. So. Um, so as, a, as, as an instructor, and if somebody is looking to ride, and do you want them to 
purchase a bike first and then come to the course? Uh, the bikes are provided, but would you prefer somebody that uh, has never ridden before come to those courses, or is it somebody who maybe has a little bit of riding experience to come to those courses? You know, that's that's a fair question. Um, the folks with some riding experience are way easier. They're they're way easier to teach, right? Because, like I said, your whiteboard is not completely full right yeah. away, right? Mm-hmm. You can you can accept coaching. The reality is is that the amount of experience doesn't really matter as long as you are coachable, right? right if yeah. you can, if you can, if I can say, "Hey, I need you to to do to do that smoother," or "I need you to do that sooner," or "I need you to do that more," right? If you can respond to that coaching and change change your behavior, change your action. Those are the students that are that are best for us to come, to come with an open mind, right? And please know I'm not going to overload you. I'm going to ask you to do what you absolutely need to do. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes in the intermediate course, that's the the beginner course or the basic course for folks that already know how to operate the bike. Some of those folks have so much experience they come to us and they're not willing to learn. They're not willing to listen. I already know how to ride. I'm just doing this to get my license. Right. Oh, that's and terrible. then, and yeah. then, you know, we're, we're trying to, you know, coach them. You need to turn your head more, right? In this, you got to turn your head to look through the turn, and they refuse, and then they get dinged on the final exam because they don't turn their head enough. I, I've been telling you all day, you got to turn your head more. I'm not, I'm not saying that to make you crazy, right? It's like, this, I'm telling you this because it's going to help you pass the test at the end, you know, stuff like that. And so, those riders who are closed off to new information are really hard to deal with. Um, fortunately, we win, we win most of them over. When we show them how counter-steering works, they're like, oh, wow, I never knew that. Right, that's great. This guy might be able to teach me more, right? And so then all of a sudden, the light bulb goes on, mm-hmm. they get a big smile, like, that was cool. What else you got for me? Well, first of all, get so, your head around. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, uh, the beginners... Um, we love to remind them that, like, whether you pass or fail this course, that doesn't matter so much to us. What we're trying to do is to give you a safe place to come and learn if you're cut out for motorcycling, if this is what you want to do. We're going we're gonna to help you through it. And then, but if you, if you pass the course and you decide to never ride, that's totally okay. Right, we don't. That doesn't bother me. If you if you fail the course, it's like that's okay too, because that's that's the message that you're going to need more practice than just a basic course to get your license, or maybe that that you're not you're not cut out for this. I had I was getting my flu shot <clears throat> last year, and I was on the on the table, my, my arms out, and this lady's got this big big needle, right, and she's talking to me. She noticed the, the Team Oregon. She noticed the Team Oregon thing. She said, "Oh, you." You were with Team Oregon. Are you one of the instructors? I'm like, yeah, yeah. She says, you know, um, she's like flicking the needle, you know. She says, you know, um, you, uh, my son took that course and you failed him. I'm like, oh yeah, you know, not everybody learns. You know, I'm like, you know, everybody learns at the same rate or whatever. And I'm like looking at the needle, you know. She's like, actually, she's like, you failed him. You failed him twice. I'm like, oh. Like this, this is going good, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and so she's getting the needle ready, and she's like. Not only did he give up on the idea of motorcycling, he gave up driving a car. He's like, Mom, I'm not cut out for this. It was the best 
thing you ever did for him. And then she goes and she gives me the shot. I didn't even feel it. It was like a, a butterfly kissing my arm or something like that. So, okay, yeah. So, so sometimes, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's just a great place to learn whether you're cut out for it or not. Our, our job isn't to get people into writing, right? Yeah. If you are convinced that this is what you want to do, we're going to get you started in the, the safest way we possibly can. Well, you, you kind of answered my next question there uh, because, again – being so close to the college, that's also my exercise area too. So rather running around it or walking or whatever, I remember uh, probably about a year, maybe two years ago, I was running by there and there was a particular lady on, I think it was the Vespa, uh, you know, and um, from the time it took me to run around that area where they are, probably took me, I don't know, three or four minutes. Um. She tipped over twice. Oh. And I was like, yeah, that was kind of my reaction. So I ran the long way around, whatever it took me, came back around. And when I saw her again, she was tipped over again. And I was just like, first I was like, you're not cut out for this. But then I was like, but maybe, yeah. you know. So do you have situations like that where you just instantly are like, oh, boy. Is it going to be a long day with with this person, or yeah. and that and that's just more than likely a fail at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. I had a a, a very recent experience once, but the, but that yeah, that happens. That that's that's really frequent, and somebody's not cut out for it. What what these what these students don't realize, and there's no reason they should, right? Because this is kind of a new this is kind of a new thing. Is like even in training, even in a safety class, you can get hurt. Like if you make a mistake oh, yeah. and you are too abrupt on the controls, you you can you can get seriously hurt. Um, and so, instructors are trained to kind of recognize that. And when when a student falls down, you have a you got to have a little conversation. You know, are you are you hurt? We can't ask them if they're okay because oh yeah, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay because they're embarrassed, right? They got yeah. adrenaline or whatever. Mm-hmm. Are you hurt? Right, because because that not only that helps us understand what's going on with that student, you know, uh, but also helps them realize, oh, that yeah, that hurt, right, and um, and then we talk about, okay, do you know why that happened, right, and you understand, and so we get them to understand why that why that happened, and like, look, um, here's what I need you to do differently, right, and so and so you know, if they want to continue, they get to continue, and we watch them pretty closely. And if, if they can't respond to that coaching, here's what I needed you to do differently, you know, you stop them again, or if they fall down again, look, you have to do this differently, right? I, right. Need, I need to see you do this differently, right? And so we kind of we escalate, up, escalate up to it. And if somebody, really, this is, this is a failure to respond to coaching. Yeah. And if they, can't, mm-hmm. if they can't respond to coaching, then they're going to get hurt, they're putting themselves in danger and they're they're also putting the other 11 students, you know, at risk as well. So then we just like today is not your day. You're not ready for this. We try to dismiss them, you know, carefully and conscientiously and, you know, cuz it's it's a big it's a big deal for folks and oh, you try, you can dismiss them early. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if they if 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 they can, if they don't respond to coaching and they're a danger to themselves, like yeah, they, you can get you can get really hurt even at four miles an hour on a oh, little yeah. tiny training bike. I had another another student uh, last year who was um, physically overwhelmed. Um, she just 
Uh, she was not in really good condition, and it was a hot day, and she's wearing, she's wearing like a leather jacket or whatever because she didn't have a long sleeve T-shirt to wear, for example. And she was overheated, and she was overexhausted, and she was making mistakes, and her husband was there watching her, and she was trying to perform for him, or boyfriend maybe. She oh, was trying boy. to look good, you know, she yeah. wanted to get her license and stuff, and she was she was fading quickly, right? And so I kind of like I stopped her, and like... You know, you don't you don't seem like you're okay. You seem like you're overwhelmed. And she's like, No, no, I, I'm okay. I can do this. I can do this. I'm like, You seem like you're really about to about to fail here, either physically or you're gonna you're gonna crash the bike. Are you? He's like, No, no, I can do this. I know I can do that. I know you can do this, but I don't know if you should do this. She's like, I want to finish. I'm like, I don't think that's a good idea, right? And so she was really convinced on the surface, like, no, I can do this. I can do anything. I put my mind to this. I can do it. I'm like, mm-hmm. that's, that's not, that's not what we're going to do. And so like, so I kind of counseled her out of it. Like her husband is right there. And this guy's easily hundred pounds bigger than I am. Right. And I'm like, I'm trying to talk. His, and they were both within a couple of minutes, they were both really grateful. They're like, you know what? You're right. I am, I am overdoing it and I'm headed for a fall. And like, just, you know, it doesn't mean you don't get to ride anymore. It's just, you know, we got to quit for today, right? You're going to try this again a different time. Yeah. that That's actually well-worded way to, you know, sometimes a confrontation could happen, you know, but I also think uh, a friend of mine, Travis just went through a, um, a heat exhaustion and he was down on the Oregon BDR and just... Mm-hmm. It went all sorts of bad, and so he he was on, and we we had a conversation on air, and also more off, and it was just, man, when when you start overheating, and and people just don't understand that, especially if you're not somebody who is healthy conscious, we'll say, you know, you don't understand about hydration, electrolytes, eating correctly before, and, and fueling your body and keeping it cool, and how, in a situation in a classroom. You could be very coachable and then a little less listening, a little less listening to like bad mood. I don't want to do this. And I've seen this on the football field, yeah. you know, during doubles yeah. and stuff too, where the kids are just like gun ho and ready. But that one kid that didn't dehydrate or didn't hydrate correctly is now cramped up, bad moods. You yeah. Know? So it, it's, a, it's the exact same thing of just trying to be conscious of your body in a warm environment and know that my decision-making is not where it was. My balance is not where it was. And my attitude can go zero to piss off real quick. Yeah. 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 That's fatigue and exposure is so insidious because it, it, it happens to you without you really consciously recognizing it. Right. It's like you just, Mm -hmm. and on on a motorcycle, what, what happens is you, you you start making mistakes. Right. And like, and so anytime you make a mistake, it's good to be like, okay, I just recognize what's going, what's going on. You got to listen to your body, right? And some, yeah. sometimes you just need a break, right? Other times, but we know, you know, you are a different rider at 10 o'clock in the morning than you are at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. You're out all day. Ian at 4 o'clock is way different from Ian at 10 right. o'clock, right? Yep. And so that's, that's wind and that's sun and heat and hydration and all that stuff and and. Really, it doesn't mean you can't ride. You just you got to recognize that and kind of adjust. You take more take more breaks, right? Or you have mm-hmm. a bigger bigger space cushion. You ride a little slower. You accommodate those things. But but anytime, I love I love playing this game. And you've kind of alluded to it already. Like when you make a mistake, 
right? You think about like what, all right, what just happened, right? And and the way I conceive it, I'm like, if I could, so let's say I pass through an intersection and I'm like, ooh, that was close, right? I think back, I'm like, okay, if I could do that again, what would I do differently, right? And that's mm-hmm. that's where the real learning comes in, like because you can you can think about really hard about how. Um, and then that, that stays with you, right? You remember that. And so now the next time you see that, you're more likely to behave in the, the ideal way that you, that you came up with in your mind the last time. I, uh, I played this game once. It was quite, I learned it in a book. Um, the book was called The Upper Half of the Motorcycle. It was written by like a, a behavioral scientist or whatever. Um, and he said, put a counter on your bike. And, I, and I, I tried this. You know, like the count, like at the mall when you right. walk by and people click, put one of those on your bike. So I bought one, like two bucks, a little digital thing, and I made it a point. Every time I made a mistake, this, this, this is what the, the game is. Every time you make a mistake, just just hit the counter, right? It doesn't, I, don't even think, I don't even think the author explained like what to do with it after that, but just do it as a, as a psychological kind of a thing. And, and so what, what happened is I realized I would... I would make a note. I was really hard on myself. Every time I'd make a mistake, I would do that. It would take time to push that little button and whatever. And then, but what it did was that uh, it kind of pressured me or it, or it encouraged me to kind of analyze, okay, well, why was that a mistake? And that's what got me to the, okay, if I could do that again, how would I do it different? But what I discovered, this was the most important discovery I made, like, like tracking those mistakes. I realized that most, if not all, those mistakes I made because I was either distracted or I was impatient, and that's that's personal to me. I don't think that's I don't think that's what everybody would would encounter. But recognizing that about myself, now I'm better able to recognize when I'm distracted. I'm like, okay, you're distracted right now. You need to get your mind back on the bike. Right, right? focus up. Or if I'm impatient, right, like you're 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 being a butthead, right? Just slow back off a little bit. There's no there's no you know that. That sort of thing. That really helps me make better decisions and to stay more focused on, on the task at hand. I think that goes back to personal accountability. You know, I think um, I listened to a guy and read his books and stuff called Jocko Willink, and he has like, you know, extreme ownership and, and these books that are fantastic. And one of the things is just being like, you're realizing you're making those mistakes. Like you can see that the count there, and then it becomes more of a, um, I'm going to own up to these. I'm going to learn from them. And then like the toolbox, like we go back to, right? So you can think about all those things. Like you were just saying, you just put all those in your toolbox. You just leave those drawers open and you just reach in there and grab that tool, you know? And I think that's very, very important as a motorcyclist to, recognize our flaws and like you were saying like oh i was distracted right there to me when i get distracted i'm like what made me distracted you know was it that bird oh look at the birdie you know was it something like that or the scenery and the scenery could be really bad you know because it's breathtaking and you're like you just want to look over there and you forget you're doing 50 miles an hour on two wheels you know so it's just being accountable for your for your actions and and, and keeping your mind kind of focused. Yeah. And I'm horrible about that too. Like if we're out on a trip, you know, for whatever reason, guys throw me in the front. Like, all right, we'll follow you. And it's like, okay, so I'm going. So then I'm, I've got the guys behind me. 
we're, we're going to this place. Okay, it looks like I got to turn in X amount of miles. Okay, I think it's about a half mile. And then it's like GPS, road, GPS, road. And it's like you get there and you turn and you're yeah. like, I don't even remember like the last two minutes of that road. You know, yeah. and then you're like, what just happened? Yeah. You know, you yeah. got to be so mindful out there of what's going on around you. Yeah, a great, a great example of distraction. And I think anybody, anybody who has to go to work somewhere away from home, you know, uh, probably understands this. But like, have you ever gotten halfway home from work without even realizing how you got there? Right. Right. Yeah. That's, that's my sort of distraction on them. I'm like, I'm thinking, God, I got to mow the lawn when I get home. So I'm going to have to run and get, get gas for the mower. You know, and, and, you know, like, like four blocks have gone by and I'm like, yeah. I'm off, I'm off mowing the lawn. Right. I'm like, no, no, right here. Yeah, I need, I need you right here, right now. What, what yeah. about the ride over? Yeah, you know what? I don't know. It's just the distractions out there are so more, so a lot. You know, right. you got the comms in your helmets now. You've got, I don't do it, but um, the tunes you can listen to. You mm-hmm. know, and it's just there's so many distractions. And I think on a motorcycle, it's not like a car. You know, we get distracted. We all get distracted in the cars. We look at the phone and want to change songs or whatever. You do that on a motorcycle, and it's like I don't like the song. I want to, yeah, I want to skip it. But your eyes are now down, and it's just—it's so different. That's hard. Yeah. It's really hard. You've got to have a pretty good mental capacity to manage, you know, like a navigation system and a helmet communicator, and yeah, and I, I, I try to avoid that stuff because <laughs> I'm just barely able to ride the motorcycle <laughs> safely without, without that stuff. Right. I. The comms actually, for me, I think are some of the best things that have ever been, you know, brought to us as riders. You know, my dad's 74 and him, he and I ride a lot together on road, off road. And just being able to go down, it, we'll just be some random place in Oregon. He's like, you see that cutout in the hill over there? I'm like, yeah. He's like, that's actually part of the Oregon Trail. And the history behind this is this. And you're just like, what? Yeah. So random, but I get these stories and just the conversations. And I actually think at times, like, maybe if if you weren't having a conversation, you might be like, oh, I'm tired. I should pull over. But you're just like, hey, what's going on? Yeah. So I think the comms are good. But, yeah, (laughs) especially me because I got Gaia, the app on my phone over here, and then I got my Garmin. Uh So I'm like, Uh Which one? Left, yeah. right, left, right, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, some, sometimes that stuff can keep you, can help keep you alert. Yeah. Too. You know, I, I, found, I found once that, like, uh, I've discovered that, that music, playing music in the helmet, um, if it's just music, it can, it can affect my mood and affect my actions a little bit. Um, like, when you compare, like, if it's Foo Fighters, I'm a different writer than, like, if it's Chet Baker, right? You know, <laughs> yeah. A little smooth jazz or whatever. Sure. Um, but I also discovered that actually, um, when I get droopy, singing along with the music that does something like to my attention and my endorphins like perks perks me up again. Especially that works in a car when I get sleepy oh, yeah. if I'm driving at night or whatever. But even even on the bike, if I feel like I'm getting a little droopy, but I'm not ready to take a break yet, it's like mm-hmm. it's just I'll just sing a song. Right, you're singing. It wakes just... wakes me right up. It does. Yeah. There's something. Maybe there's endorphins or who knows what. Having your concert in the car, yeah, yeah. And on the bike in your helmet. Yeah. I think we've all done that. Uh-huh. For me, I think uh, we we go back to a little bit different stuff. It, it's like um, you know, say just men's mental health or whatever. And to me, the wind therapy is like a real thing. So, we had this thing go through on Instagram 
uh, I think about a week ago. And my really good friend, Chris Critermoto, he, um, he posted a thing and tagged me in it on his story. And it was just like, what's your favorite writing song or writing music? And it was just like, bam, everybody's just lighting up this, 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 this. And I was sorry to disappoint you guys. You know, I'm, I don't listen to anything. Yeah. It's like that maybe one or 2% of my, all my writing that I do, I'll actually have music on. If I'm on a long trip by myself, I might do a book on tape. But other than that, I just like to listen to myself chat. Mm-hmm. You know, it's I come up with a lot of personal solutions that way. Uh-huh. You know, I am down about this or this is stressing me out or what should I do about that? Or this is really awesome. And it's just like, oh, I'm going to do it this way. Yeah. Okay. You know, and yeah. that's that's me. It's just that's my quiet time. Yeah. And people yeah, are like, well, you drive trucks, so you, don't you have that? And no, that's when the music's on. That's right. when the podcasts are on. You know, that's when I'm doing my yeah. you know cab vocal singing auditions. You know. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> it's pretty cool. So talked about kind of the uh, the beginner aspect of of coming in. So you also have the the courses that you've been talking about a little bit more advanced. And I think um, most of my listener base is already somewhat of an advanced writer. So what kind of recommendations, and I know that some of you guys don't live in Oregon that listen to this, and I know some of you guys live in a completely different country. But if you are in this area and and you hear a course that you're interested in, by all means, look up teamoregon.org and Go on and, and, and register. And if you're not from around here, uh, I'm sure wherever you are, the training courses will have something kind of similar to it, you know. Um, so we've talked about Pat's Acre, which is a small go-kart track road course out here. I know you guys do some stuff mm-hmm. there. Uh, you got a, a breaking class today. So if somebody comes out, out, let's just walk them through. So they – Somebody is all in, so they take their basic class, and then they go to the intermediate class. Now they're looking to learn a little bit more of a higher skill set. What would be the next class that you would recommend for them to take, and, and kind of why? So <clears throat> if, they've taken a, if they've taken a basic course, there's no reason to take the intermediate course. Okay. Uh, the intermediate is just a shortened basic course is all it is. Like. The difference is that in the basic course, you also learn how to work the controls, right? And okay. so, so the intermediate course is the same stuff that's in the basic course. And so the next, the next step from there, if you haven't had any other training, would be road riding tactics. And that's a, that's a half-day course. It's four and a half hours. We do that Oregon City here at, uh, at Clackamas and, and other sites. And what that is, that's kind of a, it's kind of a smorgasbord. It's for... A rider who has graduated from a basic or intermediate course and they got a motorcycle license and now they're looking to refine the skills that they have built so far. Uh, it focuses, uh, there's no classroom, it's just parking lot exercises and focuses on three skill areas. We do low speed precision maneuvering and braking and then cornering, right? These are the three of the skills three of the advanced skills that are the most difficult to learn on your own, right? Just like mm-hmm. if your dad's friend hadn't talked about cornering, about 
turning the bike in a little bit later, you might not have ever, that might have never occurred to you, right? Right. Um, and so, so that's what we do. That's what we do in road riding tactics. And that's sort of the introduction to advanced training. Like you get low speed maneuvering, you get braking and cornering, and you can figure out. So you get great riding tips and you get good practice and coaching and feedback, right? And it gives you stuff to, you, now I got stuff to practice for the next year or two after taking that course. But it could also help you recognize, like, what in what area am I weakest? Where do I want? Where would I want more training, right? And then after that, then we have we literally have those three topics as three separate courses. We have a precision maneuvering clinic and a braking clinic and a cornering clinic, mm-hmm. um, to to go and to take those topic areas and to dive even deeper and to get to get better at them, um, and then. So those are more specific classes. Those are kind of working on one skill area in each one of those courses. But then one of the courses, as you know, we teach at Pat's Acres, is advanced riding techniques, which is, again, that's more of a generalist. That's more of a generalist course. There's a little bit of everything in that one. So there's a couple hours of classroom where we talk about not only motorcycle control, and control operation and what to do for braking and cornering and swerving and stuff like that. But we also talk about riding strategy, uh, about traffic and uh, traffic management, risk management. Mm-hmm. Um, we try to dispel some of the myths of motorcycle riding. Um, you know, like what um, and and like for example, most riders when you ask them what's what's the biggest risk, and I'll ask you what's the biggest risk to motorcycle riders out there on the road. I would say two things that come to mind right off the bat, the rider and then traffic. Mm-hmm. Most riders, when, when, they, when they hear that question or they think about this concept, they think it's other drivers. It's other drivers pulling out in front of me at intersections, right? Yeah. And so that's a problem. We, we get that, right? Other drivers, they, we know they don't see us, right? We get that. Even when they look for us, they don't see it. We get that. Um, but really the reality in Oregon is we lose most of our riders on curves, yeah, and this is a this is a surprise. That's part of the riders being unprepared or whatever. And so, so we talk about stuff like that. We, most riders believe that other drivers at intersections are their biggest problem, but really no, it's it's themselves, and and they don't realize how much control. Riders don't realize how much control they have over their riding environment if they if they choose to wield that power, and so that's. That's the sort of the, the discussion we have in the art, the advanced riding techniques classroom. Yeah. But then we get out onto the, onto the track, and it's not, it's not a full-on racetrack, high-speed sort of thing. It's like most of those turns are maybe 20, 15 to 30 miles an hour, right? And it's tight and curvy. There's a straight stretch. You could probably get up to 40 or 50, right, if you, really, if you really pull on it. But what's great about that course is that it's all fenced off. There's no traffic, there's no pedestrians, there's no animals, there's no bicyclists. Everybody's going in the same direction. And you get to practice the same curves over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, right? And so you can really, you can, you can push everything else out of your mind and you can really work on your technique and your timing and your transitions in those corners. And so that's, that's, what, that's what most of that is. But there's also higher speed Breaking exercises and decision-making exercises, swerving and breaking, stuff like that. So right, and swerving in mid-corner, right? Uh, no, no, no. We uh, 
No, we do we do breaking breaking in a corner, like emergent yeah. like making an emergency stop when you leaned over. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's more we, of what I was. You did. You did that. No. Um. That that again. Going back to Ken. You know. Unfortunately, he's passed away now. But it's just kind of. He was telling me about that course mm-hmm. and how the instructors were kind of instructing it and stuff. And I was just like, I don't know why I haven't taken it yet. I've been like, oh, this, this sounds like right up my yeah. alley. Um. And going back to the cornering, you were talking about, you know, going around the corner, that's how we lose a lot of people. Um, I was actually watching, I don't know if this statistic is actually correct, but um, I was watching another motorcycle instructor out of Texas, and he said it was like 80% of all motorcycle fatalities are in corners. That's, that's, that's pretty close. Yeah. Um, I would say, I would say, 75% of all motorcycle fatalities could have been prevented by the rider. Yeah. Um, and I think, but I think nationwide overall, it's like 45 to 50% of the fatalities are in curves. Yeah. And really that's just, that's just too fast. Mm-hmm. Right. And not a good enough head turn. Right. If you, if your speed is right and you turn your head and you look and you're looking through the turn, you can make any corner. It's like, it doesn't, it, it's not, it's not rocket science. Rock, it's not rocket surgery. Right. Yeah. I think it's uh, – I think a lot of people, when they panic, when they're getting a little wide in a corner, whether it's uh, breaking in a turn. Is that the term? Might be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, rather, it's slowing down through there, going a little too hot. Um, I think a lot of people panic, and they kind of sit up because they're panicking. And I think most bikes will be able to make that turn. You know, so I think the the practice and being comfortable in the corners, you know, in the lean, especially with, with low traction in that situation coming around, uh, I've done that a few times. I got, I won't say the road names, but just right down here, there's, there's some roads and they have really tight S curves and, and I'm talking like they're 10 mile an hour curves mm-hmm. and I will, and they go uphill, you know, and your head around it's i've been riding those same corners for years and so i constantly i'm like remember when you used to take these at like 11 you know and now you're doing them at like 25 30 miles an hour and it's just wow you know your head's so far around and it's just those little things that you guys teach is just you implement them through your riding and like I still hear, like I said before, like get your head around, and yeah. I'll be on corners, and I'll yeah. hear him saying that as I'm making the corner, and I just yeah. chuckled to myself. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, years later, it really works. That's that's one of the that's one of the techniques. Like I said, some of those experienced riders who come at us come to us with an attitude. That's one of the things that can win them over, is when you show them how powerful that head turn is, and their head and eyes like, oh man, that works. I never knew that, yeah. and then. And then, we, then we've got them, right? And then we can teach them some other stuff the rest of the day. We, uh, we believe so strongly that it's really head and eyes, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's our thing. And there's, there's more to it. There's more to it than we, we'll save that for another, uh, for another podcast. But years ago in, in the mid-aughts, we conducted an experiment. Uh, we outfitted a, a bike and a rider or several riders with camera equipment and computer. Big, this was... 2007 or 2008 so there was a lot of computer equipment Uh, but they had a uh, they had a camera on the front of the bike 
and then a camera on their helmet, but the the camera was pointed in and it was pointed at their eye. Oh. And so so then we we took these riders out and we filmed them. We filmed what they could see in the environment. Uh, it might have I don't remember if the camera was on the bike or on the helmet. It doesn't matter. Um, but anyway, we took the video of the environment and then the video of the where the rider's eye was looking, and we we matched those two videos up, and so we could see where in the environment the rider was looking. And we compared three different types of riders. We compared experienced riders with beginners, right? People who had no or very very little rider, riding experience. And then our third group was beginners who had taken uh, a basic training course. Right? Okay. And so you could probably, probably sense where this is going, yeah. but experienced riders, like in the riding environment, where, where do you think they were looking most of the time? Probably just barely around the corners. They're looking straight ahead. More, more through the corners, yeah. They're yeah. Looking, their, their eyes are much further up and much further through the corner. And like beginners, we know, where, we know where they're looking, right? Yeah. They're, look, they're, they're looking down at the ground, right? right? They're not looking. But the beginners who had taken training their visual habits were much more like experienced riders. They looked much further down the road and they looked much further through the corners than, uh, than the beginners who had never taken training. And so that, that little bit of information, that, that, that technique is really transformational in a new rider. The light bulb goes on. They're like, oh, man, that works. And it's something that not only you don't ever have to forget it, but you can keep getting better at it, right? Mm-hmm. And... Because what you described, like riders sort of freezing up, tensing up in the corner, really that's that's when fear takes over. Yeah. When fear takes over, riders they sort of they 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 look they come back forward. They look forward. They kind of look down. Right. It's like a, it's a natural. It's a lizard brain reaction. Right. But the but the more the more training, the more experience you have, and the more practice you've devoted to looking through those turns. You're less likely to tense up and panic like that. You're more mm-hmm. likely to, okay, I just need to, I need to stay in this lane, and maybe I got to just gently scrub off a little speed, or maybe I got to turn the bike a little harder, or whatever. And they realize that they can do that rather than freezing up, staring at the guardrail, and now it's just, now it's just luck. Like it's just blind, it's just blind luck whether they're not going to make, they're, they're going to make it or not. Right. Nine times out of ten, where our eyes are focused on is where we're going. So if you're trying not to hit that pothole, the rock, the guardrail, the shoulder, yep. but you're fixated on it, yep. you're going to watch yourself go right into it. Yeah. It's very yeah. difficult to make the bike go somewhere you're not looking. Right. Right. <laughs> I think that's why, you know, just that head around like you've been talking about. Because uh-huh. you get away from, you know what's ahead of you. You know what the conditions are like in the road, but looking beyond right. really makes, like... It's no, not new news, but it really makes you turn in that corner a lot gentler. Yeah. Or looking even on a straight stretch of road, you know, what's way up there. Yeah. I'm always looking, what is that way up in the road? Oh, it's just, you know, a little, little speed bump or something in the road or it's, or it's an alligator. You know, yeah. we call them gators in the trucking industry uh-huh. when you blow the tire and there's yep. a big chunk sitting there. Yep. Yeah. We're just like, oh, there's a gator. Yep. Let's go around that. So yeah, we try, we try to teach really that's, that's our, our mantra is we're looking and thinking 
10 to 20 seconds ahead, yeah. not five, but like way up there, right? And you're mm -hmm. actively, you're trying to reel in new clues. You're trying to seek out information about your riding environment. Where, where am I going to be 10 to 20 seconds from now? I need to know what's going on there. So that way you're prepared. You got your position and your speed right yeah. by the time you get there. And then once you got these, then you, then you keep looking out, looking out ahead 10 to yeah, 20 that, seconds. That visual scanning is just so crucial. And especially like I, I've ridden with like experienced guys in the woods and I say, oh, did you see that through the trees? We got somebody coming. And they're like, well, I didn't see nothing, you know, because you're just yeah. used to, uh, I see the road is going to make a right while I'm looking through the trees and I just saw right. something. I think we have a car coming. Right. You know, and it's just, yeah. oh, it, to me, that's so basic. So uh -huh. just the little, that two seconds or five seconds you can get can save your life. Mm -hmm. Literally. Yeah. So... So you have these cool courses, just very, right, the corners and the advanced techniques and everything. Those all sound extremely appealing. And do the curriculum change at all now that it's raining? Do you give out a little bit of pointers like, oh, well, we're into this turn right now, but now it's going to be raining in 20 minutes during this course. Do things change with that? or uh, Unfortunately... Uh, at Pat's Acres, if it rains, we just have to cancel that course because that, that track gets slippery when it's wet. It's covered with go-kart rubber, and right. so it's slippery. Uh, but the other ones, we'll run them rain or shine. The braking clinic mm -hmm. and road riding tactics, we'll run them rain or shine. And one of the, um, one of the sort of the, not the review questions, but the uh, kind of the follow-up questions in road riding tactics. Like, for example, we talk about braking in a lean. Yeah. And we practice that for a while. And then one of the questions is, okay, if the road surface was wet or slippery, what would you do different? And then and then so we kind of engage them on the on the side of the range, like talk about what what that means, right? Well, I would I would definitely I would try to be smoother, right? And I would probably be approaching the situation at a lower speed um and I would try to be more gradual you know, with, with my braking, for example. And, and we do that We do that a few different times um, with certain skill sets. Okay, how would this be different if the surface was wet or slippery? Mm -hmm. uh, but it was funny because, like I said, we, we stick to the cards, right? We've got a script that yeah. we stick to. And so I, I distinctly <laughs> remember teaching this course in the rain in Eugene uh, last spring, and so I'm like reading them. So, if the course was wet or slippery, what would you do different? And they're all, you know, kind of staring at me blankly because it's pouring down rain right now, right? So, so um, yeah, but no, the, the but we don't we don't really change much. Um, we we allow because they're grown ups, right? When we deal yeah. with beginners, right, they need a lot of guidance and structure. But experienced riders, they they're perfectly capable of operating that bike and making those decisions right there. And so we're kind of guiding them through. I, I love working with experienced riders so much because they, they can speak the language better, right? You can communicate mm -hmm. better. And then you can take an already developed and impressive skill set and you can make it better. You can like you can make riding better for them just in an afternoon, you know, four and a half hours or two and a half hours or whatever. All of a sudden they've got something new that they get to go play with, you know, for the next year or two until they until they come back for something else. Which makes it exciting to be a writer, you know. You're like, oh, I got all this new stuff in my yeah. toolbox. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's pretty cool because, I mean, 
starting to rain, right? And so, like you said, it's just it's more gentle, more stopping distance, a little bit slower, you know, which is really good things. But also, you know, your maintenance, you know, how are your tires doing and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, remember, if you get new tires, don't go crazy. <laughs> yes. Break those in real quick. Yeah. I have a brand new set of tires, and <clears throat> we were riding yesterday just around a gentle corner, and I was like, wee. <laughs> I can feel that back end kind uh-huh. of want to come out a little bit, you know. Uh-huh. Not even going very hard at all. And, uh, <laughs> oh, boy. Riding with some of my buddies is like riding with children. Coming up to a stoplight, and you're kind of looking over here, and your bike's shut off all of a sudden, and you look over, and your buddy's, like, hit your kill switch and just laughing. Yep, like, right away. Grab your keys, throw them in the ditch right oh, away. Yep. Fortunately, you can't do that on the Africa <laughs> Twin, but, man. And then, of course, oh, you did it once. Yeah, you're fine. Next intersection. Bam. <laughs> but yeah i think um one of the things I, I i wonder right now listening to you going back to kind of the the beginner courses and talking about you know the people that maybe need to come back you know maybe not your day one thing that popped into my head right there is i wonder how many if, if there was a way to do the statistic which i i'm not sure there there is but how many lives were saved by people having an environment where they can come take a class rather than going out and just buying something and learning, Mm -hmm. you know, and just out on the road with the public and just getting all smashed up, you know, like that lady I saw just kept tipping over. It was like, I don't know. She might be a great writer now. It was really hard to tell, but I know at that point I was like, this isn't for you, yeah. you know? So that's just one of those things in my mind where I'm like, I wonder how many people have been saved because they just, like the story you told where the kid just, I'm not even going to drive anymore. Yeah. You know? Yeah, we we have tried to discern that. And nobody in this country has really got any good evidence that what we do actually works. We, we know it works in here. We understand in our hearts that yeah. it works. But there's really, there's no hard evidence. But we have... We have tried, and we found some some promising some promising information about that, and and that's one of the one of the projects that I'm working on right now because Team Oregon is an Oregon State University program, and so I'm working with our dean, and we're trying to get some of the some a, a professor involved, and actually to do some research into that, and to find out how effective is rider training in reducing crashes and injuries and fatalities and and other things like like DUI arrests. And oh, yeah. speeding, reckless, that that sort of thing, and so, so we have, we have those things in mind. But over the last, uh, I shouldn't say over the last few years, a few years ago, we did get our hands on some really good data from Oregon for there was like a six year a six year time period, um, where we we knew who died in a fatal motorcycle crash. We knew which riders died over those six years. And so we could look up those names to see if they were somebody who had taken our course, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'll preface this by saying, like, a survey that we did back in 2012, we estimate that about two-thirds of Oregon riders have taken a motorcycle safety course, either a basic or intermediate or advanced course. About two-thirds of those riders had some training experience. 
And so that, you know, if you're going to make the assumption that two-thirds of riders have had training, right? And so then we looked at the fatalities. How many of those riders had had, had, had training? Uh, it was only about, I think it was about 19%. And so the difference between 19% and 66%, that kind of points to the difference that training could make in the lives of riders. Literally, that, that, could, be, that, that could be the number of lives that were saved through motorcycle training. It's not, it's not definitive, right? It's, it was right. sort of an informal, it was an informal, like we're looking up news reports to try to find people's names and stuff like that. And so it wasn't, it wasn't truly scientific and complete, but it was really promising that it was that big of a difference, right? Uh-huh. That only, only one in five of those riders killed uh, had actually taken a training course. I think anybody that's listening to this and who has taken a course is having the exact same thought that I am right now. It's like, how could that not be relevant, right? right. Yep. Like, seriously, like the stuff you learned, how could it not be relevant to this kind of data, right? I, I know for me that I'm a much better writer because of taking that course. Um, I'm a much better writer because I'm eager to learn. You know, and I'm okay with being like, oh, it's okay, it's okay, so I can learn this, right? Yeah. Not having that ego. So I think that's a very interesting statistic for sure. And I, I have, there has to be some sort of, you know, legitimacy to it. Yeah, so we're, we're going to try to chase it down. Really, we need, yeah. to, we need to connect with our partners at, at DMV, right? We need to get, yeah. um, we're hoping that we'll be able to get a hold of the, of the records that, that we need to make a good comparison. But also I think we're going to need to explore uh, the counties and, and the courts because we, we can look at arrests and convictions and things like that, and we can see our riders who've taken training, are they less likely to be, you know, arrested for DUI or DUII in Oregon? Yeah. Uh, that, that sort of thing, like re- reckless riding, careless riding, even, even speeding. I mean, speed is still... That's the it's speed, alcohol, and curves. That's that's where we lose riders, uh, in and that's that's pretty much every every state, with the exception of Florida, I think, because they don't have curves there; they just have straight roads and, <laughs> and lots of lots of intersections, and lots of real alligators. Yeah, on the and, and and real yeah, true alligators, yeah. right? Absolutely. Yeah, Florida is a whole different thing, and it and going back to like just the safety, it still blows my mind that you know I go into Idaho or Nevada. And I'm like watching these riders go around in jeans, tank tops, and no helmet, just flying down the road. Yep. I'm just like, whoa, it's so weird to see. Yeah, I was just I was just back home in Minnesota a couple of weeks ago, and that always that always strikes me really odd to see folks riding around with with no helmets. Yeah, and almost like almost universally the same outfit too. It's jeans and either a white or black t-shirt. Yeah, and a black and a black leather vest. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's it's, a qu- it's and, quite crazy. Yeah. Every once in a while, I see those guys cruise around with their ch- with their shirt off. You're like, mm-hmm. what, dude? Yep, oh, it scares me. So, so um, kind of moving into the next um, season and everything. <clears throat> I I got on your website a little bit, or the Team Oregon website rather, and you do have some resources up there for like training and a couple videos and things to read about. So any one of those you particular you want to point out to or have you been on there enough? You know, I, I um yeah, there is 
there's a lot of free information there. For someone who doesn't ever want to come and take a course, there's plenty of free stuff there mm -hmm. that they can get. And so in, uh, in the section on, on the website uh, called Writer Resources or, or just Resources, I can't remember what it's called. Yeah. I believe it's writer moment. resources. But there are, there's, there's strategies for dealing with intersections. There's strategies for dealing with curves. There's strategies for dealing with group writing, which is, this is another, this is another problem that people don't recognize. But when you look at the fatalities in Oregon, about 20 to 25% of them are group rides. They are, they happen, they happen in a group riding situation where you get two or more riders riding together. Yeah. Um, and so, so that that's why that information is there, and that's that's really about it's about distraction, it's about peer pressure, it's about trying to fit in, trying to stay together, trying to keep up. Mm -hmm. um, and some writers get they get kind of pushed pushed past their yeah. you know ride whatever because they're because they're trying to fit in, mm -hmm. right? And I, I get that that's a social thing, and and so there's yeah so group writing information, and then even even uh, down to the detail like like blind spots, like understanding. Understanding when your vision is obscured by something, and not not necessarily the blind spot like over your shoulder, but understanding like when your view of something is blocked, right? That's that should send up little warning flags. Like I can't see what's behind that. That could be a, a pedestrian or a vehicle waiting to pull out or or whatever. And so, right, um, we've got we've got lots of lots of good riding tips there. Uh, there's even a there's a great video how to pick up your motorcycle when it falls over, I right? Because there's 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 a way to do it without hurting yourself. Yeah. Uh, that even even the smallest the smallest person can lift some of the biggest motorcycles using using the right technique. Yeah, absolutely. And I would encourage people to go to. I mean, like I said, if you're in Oregon, go to teamoregon.org and go just peruse the the website and, and learn and get out. And ride, as, as Critter says, you know, get out and ride, but get out and practice. You know, I think that is so key. Yeah. And cones are cheap. Go get some cones. If, you, if you're somewhere around where Team Oregon actually conducts these classes, you know, you can get there early or late or during the weekdays when they're not, you know, holding their classes. You can get there, you know, after work, before work, on your lunch break or something, and just get out there and you can just do drills. It's so surprising just how – basic it is just throw out a couple cones you're like oh that was actually harder than i thought you know and then yeah. you know 20 minutes later you're like all right i got this and now you keep doing that drill again yeah. you know and you just become a better and better and better writer and it's it's okay to push yourself to be better it's that statistic i heard is just most writers take one course if at all and that's the extent of their of, of their knowledge yeah you know i was watching a, a youtube video and another instructor, uh, I forget where he was from, but he was talking about Sturgis. And they had like a, an intersection cam going on. And he was just like talking, like, I'm not pointing out these kind of riders. I'm just pointing out because there's so many right here. This guy is doing this correctly, and this is why. This guy yeah. is not doing this correctly. This is why. You know, and it was just, and that's where that kind of the statistic came from where I heard of just, wow, nobody really... Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't advance their right. their knowledge. Yep, they got they got their license. They've got everything they need to know. There's no more. There's no more to learn. And unfortunately, yeah, those folks they they don't know what they don't know. Right. And those are the people. Unfortunately, when they get into a situation, they may they not. Run yeah. Out of tools. Yeah. yeah. They may run out of tools. You're right. Yeah. That's that's not fun at all. Yeah. 
So, but you don't. Another thing I should I should point out. I'm mean, like you don't you don't need one of our training facilities to go practice this stuff. No, and, you don't. And and really, for the for the record, you're really not supposed to do that. That's that's school property, and there's risks involved. If you fall down and hurt yourself or whatever, then it's like that's that's a big deal for them. And so that we we set aside like we reserve time just for our instructors to practice, you know, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But we we make sure that we ask permission, and so. I should, I should emphasize that maybe you're recommending you go do this. Um, you got to be aware you may be doing that without permission, and the college or the facility may not like you being there. Right. That's <laughs> that's a very good way to say that. But you got parking lots, you got fields, you've got maybe you live on a pretty chill street like I do. You know, you can get out and do some U-turns or. Yeah whatever right here, uh, which I've done and have my neighbors look at me like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> you know, but, you know, anywhere you can get out and practice, definitely. Yeah, and it's it's worthwhile to consider doing it uh, with a friend. Yeah. Uh, because not only you got somebody to bounce ideas off of, but you also, I think I think talking about writing and talking about techniques and taking that time to verbalize what you're experiencing or what you're working on that helps you that helps you process and understand uh understand the information and like that better it's it's definitely worthwhile i had i had a uh, an experience there's a a kid at osu oregon state university and i've kind of gotten to know their motorcycle club and he's like he said um i'm having trouble with this one, with this one turn, I just don't understand what's going on. I'm like, well, let's let's talk about that. Let's do this. I'm gonna get. I just decided we're gonna get together, and we just we went over to Reeser Stadium. They got a big parking lot there, or whatever, and we just kind of talked talked a little bit about it, you know, and about okay, well, and so really he's talking about a, a 35 mile an hour road uh, that's straight, and there's an intersection he needs to turn at. He needs to turn right on this, and so he just he always feels like he's turning too tight. He's going too fast, or he's not going fast. He's like he's just really confused by this whole thing. And so, um, without going into too much detail, what we did, we kind of understood, understood. We basically I broke it down. Like the problem is, you don't really understand uh, the line that you need to take through that turn. And so, we're going to practice that. And so we did. We just threw down some cones, and I had him approach and slow, and then carve the same line through the turn. Over and over. Now let's try it to the left in case it's got to be a left turn. Let's, let's do that. How is this different? Like, so we practiced that for a while. And then we went out and then he took me over to the place where he was having trouble. And then we just went and we practiced over there for a while. We just kept making the same turn over and over. And, and I recognized that part of, his, uh, part of his hang up was the fact that he just didn't, he didn't understand how to get the speed just right and what line to follow through that turn. But he was also, what I didn't recognize until I was there, is that he was terrified of, of cars behind him, not aware that he's slowing so much for that turn. I'm like, okay, well, let's, let's talk about that. How, how can you make those people behind you more aware of your intentions, right? And he was, he was kind of at a loss, right? And so just I kept pushing him, trying to be a mentor. Like, well, what are some ways? And so we, we discovered that, you know, flashing your, flashing your brake light, Maybe once or twice before you intend to slow, that might alert somebody behind you. Using a hand signal in addition to your turn signal is, is very conspicuous, right? Right. Nobody does that anymore. What's that? What's that guy doing? He's oh, he's gonna he's gonna turn, right? So sort of drawing attention to yourself as well as 
using your riding position, your position in the lane to kind of protect protect your lane, protect your position a little bit. For example, if you're going to turn right, right, and you're way over on the right side of the road to make that turn, what's the vehicle behind you going to do? They want to come around your left. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're going to blow past you on the left. But if you if you stay more towards the middle of your lane, you're protecting your lane a little bit. So they have to they have to kind of back off a little bit. So little stuff like that. And I bring that up as an example of uh, of how to go practice stuff on your own like i have trouble with this in with this intersection with this turn but i don't understand what to do about it so you get together with a friend and you kind of talk about it and you run through it you, you just i think it doesn't even matter if your results or your answers are right or wrong i think just the talking about it with another rider and verbalizing what's on your mind just same thing with men's mental health right right we got to be able we got to be able to communicate what's going on in here, right? Because it helps us process and helps us solve our own problems. And so, you know, the assumption was this chap, I'm like, you know what the answer is. I know you know it inside you already. My job is to help you bring it out, right? And so, so that's what I would recommend. Like, do it with a, do it with a buddy, take a partner along and ride, ride together. And then you stop and you talk about, talk about what you're working on and what you're feeling and and uh, I think that really helps, uh, builds a great motorcycling relationship, but then it also helps you, helps you process information and be a better rider afterwards. And it builds a community with you and your friend, uh-huh. uh, pushes both of you guys to, to practice and, and be held accountable for practicing, but also that other set of eyes, you know, that I don't know how many times in just life, coaching, writing, business, you know, you're stuck and you're just like, I'm having troubles with this. And somebody will just be just the way they say the exact same thing uh-huh. and it's just worded a little bit different. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I got that now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's our that's our yeah. philosophy. A lot, a lot of the work that we do at Team Oregon, we do a lot of training, 10,000 students a year. But we also, we do, we try to do a lot of outreach and engagement and trying to um, really interact with the motorcycling community, mm-hmm. right? Like, like coming here and doing this is one, is one way of doing that. We do a lot of social media and stuff like that. And my theory behind that is that a motorcycle rider who is just on their own, they're by themselves. They don't have any other riding friends or whatever. They're sort of, they're sort of isolated. I think they're, I think they're vulnerable. I think they're more at risk than someone who's more connected to other riders or connected to the writing community because they've got they've got other viewpoints, mm-hmm. other other people that they can talk to about this and be exposed to new ways of new ways of thinking about things. I think writers who are connected to other writers are probably less likely to get into trouble than writers who are just on their own doing their own thing with with no input. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I think crossing boundaries, so to speak, of the. You know, the Harley community and the ADV community and the dual sport and then, you know, the cruisers and everything. Uh, I had a really good conversation with a couple Harley guys in a restaurant. And I was just by myself eavesdropping a little bit because they were talking motorcycles. I'm like, huh? What you guys talking about over there? And uh, they were just talking about riding in general. You know, and they were just really talking about certain roads in this area that they they really liked and stuff and these corners and like, oh yeah, those roads. You know, when when something you ride something and you're talking about it and it was awesome, you kinda light up. 
both these guys were doing that over the same road. You could just uh-huh. see it in their eyes. One of the guys ended up moving, and uh, I didn't get the full story. You know, I'm a pancake guy, so my pancakes came up, and so I'm eating them and whatever. And what I ended up hearing is he moved, and the road that he lives on is more of a country road, and he wants to ride the whole road, but there's a five-mile stretch of gravel. And Harley guy, and I, the way these guys were talking about it, I'm thinking like stereotypical, polished, beautiful bikes, right? And he's like, I don't mind riding the gravel. I just don't feel like I'm safe on it. I'm just all over the place, and I'm back end's coming out, my front end's doing this, and you know, I just slow way down, and I, I just kind of, you gotta go a little faster. And they kind of look over at me, and I'm like, I ride a lot of gravel, you know. So we, we ended up having a great conversation just about stuff, and I think maybe I gave him a pointer. No, I'm going to try that, you know. But it was just that kind of community uh-huh. where just people are just like, oh, we all ride. It doesn't matter what part of the country you're in. It doesn't matter if it says whatever on the side of your tank, you know. We're all just like, we all kind of light up. Hey, let's talk. Yeah. Yeah. yeah somebody, else, somebody else on two wheels, regardless of how different it is from your choice of bike, like you have a lot more in common than you think. It, absolutely. Because when you're riding and you're going down the highway and you're hitting the twisties and you're doing this and you're doing that, it's all the same, right? We're, we're all going down. Some bikes you're fighting into the corner and fighting out of the corner, and some will corner a little bit better. Mm-hmm. I've ridden a couple of bikes where I was like, oh, my God. God, how do you ride this thing all day? I mean, you've got to like seriously fight the thing into the corner with like this counter steer and then fight the counter steer to come out of the corner. It's like, that's fun. Yep. <laughs> yep. Some guys, some guys love that. I asked, yeah. how, how in the world do you, the, uh, a guy on a Harley trike, like I had tried, I had tried it and it required so much upper body strength to turn that bike. I'm like, how do you? How do you do that? What what technique do you use to get that thing turned? He's like, he's an old military guy. He's like, I just reef on it. <laughs> like, I learned I learned a new word. I just reef on I it. Just yeah, reef on it. So, yeah, no big deal. Yeah, everybody everybody's got their yeah got their special the thing that they love about it, right? Like, right. there's there's a book there's a book written. I can't remember the author's name now, but the book was called Bodies in Motion. And it was a book that was published by the Aerostitch, the Rider Warehouse. And half of that book is just diagrams of engine vibration harmonies or whatever. It's like there's, you know, different twins and triples and fours or whatever. They all make mm-hmm. a little a little different feel, singles or whatever, the different different vibrational feel. And one of his I I have to admit, I kind of breeze through that part because I'm not really scientifically minded. But there are his argument was that there are certain types of engine configurations that are more pleasurable to humans based on their based on their vibration and their resonance. Right? It it seems to be twins. Right? It yeah. Seems to be. I mean, that's the most. I mean, traditionally, last hundred years, that's most the most popular bikes have always been twins. Right. right? Until until only very very recently. But still, I mean, you look at Look at BMW. Look at Harley Davidson. Right? right? They don't, they don't venture too far from what they know riders love. Very funny that you brought that up right now. Uh, at that event last night, my friend Sean has a brand new R1250 GSA. You know the BMW, and he was talking about um, the boxer engine and the way the centrifugal force 
inside, you know, creates this gyro or whatever. And he was talking about how well it, it is in the corners and how it's somehow scientifically made to just be so gentle with the placement of the motor and how it's low and stuff. I was just, it's kind of a fascinating, if, if uh-huh. you're kind of a science guy, you're kind of yeah. like, okay, that, that's kind of cool how it makes your ride better, you know? Yeah. So, and <laughs> you're talking about reefing on it. Again, my buddy Critter, uh, he and I were at the, the Giant Loop ride this year, and Ural was there, and they're a motorcycle manufacturer that does sidecars, right? So he and I went out, and we rode in one of those, and he actually was – I was in the sidecar, and he was driving it. But I just remember him talking about, like, you can't turn, <laughs> Like, you cannot turn. We're going straight. We're trying to, like, make this right turn down this gravel road off the highway. And he's, like, trying to turn it, trying to turn it, trying to turn it. And I'm sitting there, and I'm, like, watching him. I'm dying laughing. And I just look over, and here's this giant ditch. And we're going, like, right for it. I'm screaming, watch the ditch, watch the ditch. And it was just, it was hilarious. In fact, if you go to the channel, Motorcycles and Pancakes, you could find that video. It's, like three minutes long of him and I just yeah. laughing riding yeah. in that thing but reefing on it mm-hmm. yeah so we have been at it for two hours and 15 minutes All right that's been pretty good so far um I wanted to say this is probably a good good place to wrap up okay um I really appreciate you coming on here and I really want the outreach of this channel to be with interesting people, but also to be uh, teaching people as well. And I think a lot of the things that you brought to the table today uh, really, I think, will get people to think. And maybe, hopefully, somebody will be out there and be like, you know what, I do need to practice because A, B, and C is weak on me. Or maybe I do need to counter on my bike. And, you know, um, just being able to be safer and, and more like, it's a change of the season. You know, I've said already, like up here in Oregon, it rains from September to June. You know, that's our rainy season. And, you know, we're, we're there. Any day, it's going to start raining and not stop for a while. And so our writing needs to be different, you know, because we are so used to summer writing. And it hasn't rained. Well, I guess it's rained a little bit here lately. I was actually out of town. But we got to remember – that first rain's coming up. All that white stuff's going to be on the roads. It is going to be super slick, yeah. you know, so be really careful. Slow down. Don't hit the, the, the corner so aggressively, you know. Uh, really make sure your bike maintenance is, is up to date, you know. Chain or shaft-driven, make sure all that's good because some of that stuff can – you don't want to have an issue on a corner, yeah. especially if it's slick out when it's raining. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, you got to be you got to be uh really smoother. Just really you yeah. can you can still ride on the miserable wet roads. Yep. It's got to be smoother. Moss is trouble. Mm-hmm. And then the kind of the the smeary slimy back roads in the winter time, they can be trouble. You don't you want you want to set yourself up for success. Might may, may want to not ride on the most the most treacherous roads in the winter time, but I agree. But um but really yeah, it's about being smooth and and when it comes to commuting and riding around around town, you want to be visible, right? And so ways to do that, we talked about, you know, bright helmet, yeah. bright jacket, um, but also uh, lighting, uh, just adding auxiliary lights to the front of a bike, particularly if you can do it sort of in that, 
that triangle configuration, you look like an oncoming freight train. Right. right? Way less likely that people are going to pull out in front of a freight train. So two guys I rode home with last night, um, Travis and – well, Jeremy was there too, but he was so far back. He, I can't include him in the conversation. But uh, we had Sean and Travis, and they both have the auxiliary lights. And um, Travis's were – he was right behind me, and I was like, man, those are bright. I don't have them on mine, yeah. and I've been thinking about doing it. And last night was the time I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Sean, he's got the BMW, so he actually has uh, two sets of auxiliary lights on there that two of them are white, and then two of them are – well, he has different lenses for yeah. them right now, so they're like that yellowish yep. amber. Yeah. But he's – I don't know if it's a BMW thing or if it's an aftermarket deal, but, man, he hits his horn and – the lights blink and do all this weird stuff yeah. and he can do that manually. And I just remember we were coming down, um, we were on McLaughlin highway 99 here and uh, we were just coming back and we went back. We started at the food carts and we ended at the food carts yesterday. Go figure. Mm-hmm. But, uh, on our way back, I just, I remember specifically looking in my mirror and being like, Jesus, those things are bright. Yeah. Like both bikes. I need to do that. Yeah. Yep, for sure. Oh, it's such a great it's such a great way to be more visible because most of your when it comes to other drivers, most ninety percent of your crash hazards are coming from like this ten to two range. Right. Right. Or seventy five percent of them are or whatever. And so that's those lights, you know, help really they, they help you they help other drivers judge your speed and distance. When it's just one little headlight, right? It's 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 harder to tell mm-hmm. how fast that rider's going, how far away they are. Right, and those uh, multiple multiple headlights will help will help with that. Yeah, I'm I'm a firm believer in that. In fact, my dad said something. He he came down to the event last night, and he was kind of nerding out on all that stuff too, just looking at all the lights. And he was like, you know, Travis is going to buy some new ones. You should uh, buy those from him and put those on your bike. You yep. can put one here and here. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'd probably do that or that. But yeah. yeah, another great thing about them is that they're totally passive, right? It requires no effort at all other than installing them. And after that, you like have this extra conspicuity right. without even having to think about it. Same thing with a white helmet, right? Or a mm-hmm. reflective reflective vest over your jacket or whatever. It's like you don't even have to think about it. Yeah, that that reflective stuff is is actually amazing. The the technology. It's it's I think in the last 10 years you know, it's just gone from like, is that reflecting to like, it almost looks like somebody's shining a light back at you. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah. I think for me with the auxiliary lights though, um, I was always worried to rip them off on a trail. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you're just riding all of a sudden it's like, <laughs> where'd the trail go? <laughs> yep. You know? And so I was worried about that, but I watched these guys and kind of watched their placement. And I think, you know, instead of out, you could put them in or mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. So just got to be creative. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, uh, there's really good, I want to say, I mean, like, I've seen really good versions of that where they're attached to the fork. Oh, yeah. Uh, to the front forks. Uh, I think there's also, there's mounting brackets that work with the calipers. They work with the brake calipers. So they don't have to be, they don't have to be way out way out here they can be much closer to the bike but again you're, you're looking for that triangle it doesn't have to be the upside down triangle mm-hmm. it can be like 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 that or whatever but you create um you create sort of an artificial parallax with your with your lights that helps other folks recognize exactly where you are less likely to less likely to get in trouble i think you said it really well that the judge of distance mm-hmm. you know and if you just have those extra little lights on there yeah. 
I think that's a, that's a fantastic thing. And, and one thing going back to what we were talking about with like just the road conditions changing, one term that I really like to use is read the road. You know, mm-hmm. like we're always scanning down, but I still want to know what's right in front of me. You know, so if it is raining, is it getting that white junk that's coming up all just the gunk and yeah. the grease and everything that's coming up off the road? Um, what's the temperature outside? You know, am I going to maybe get a little slickery into a corner with some frost or ice or something that's, yeah. you know, again, any day that can happen. You know, we can wake up and walk outside and be like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Why is my lawn white? Yeah. You know, so it's one of those things. I think a, a lot of the, the experienced riders really know this kind of stuff. But I also know from time to time on my Instagram, like, I will get that question in the in the message like, hey, I'm brand new. What do you think about A, B, or C? Yeah. You know, so it's very trying to give people good advice, but also being kind of weary of, oh, hoping that doesn't yeah. go wrong, you know. Yeah, surface surface hazards are, they're easy and they're difficult to to manage, but they're mostly easy if, if you, like we said, we said before, you're looking and thinking ahead 10 to 20 seconds, right? You're evaluating the road surface, right? But it's like, that's, that's the surface you're on. You already it's too late. It's too late to do anything about the surface that you're on. So you're looking up ten to twenty seconds ahead. Um, what you're looking for is not so much the road surface. You're not tell, trying to tell what it is. You're trying to tell if there's a change in the road yeah. surface, right? And that's like one of the most basic things we teach in training is like you're looking for color and texture, right? And it's like it's it's and you can see that ten to twenty seconds away. You can tell a dark spot in the road. I don't know if that's good or bad. I just know that it's a change, and so I got to be ready for it. So then you get a little more time to analyze it and assess it, and vary your uh, your speed, change your speed, or change your position to to accommodate it. Yeah. Um, one of the uh, one of the tricks that we teach in the advanced course, and also well, in road riding tactics in the cornering clinic, is that when we have you turn your head and look through a corner, we really we focus on turning, getting your nose pointed into the corner, right? Your eyes can still kind of move around a little bit, but as long as your nose is pointed through the corner, your eyes kind of naturally go back the direction when you stop. So you can, you can check out, like, how far you are from the center line and the fog line. Like, you can, you can glance around. You can look at your gauges. You can look surface and whatever. Right. But as long as your nose is pointed in the right direction, you always kind of go back there. And so it's, there's a little distinction that we make in advanced training is that you, you, look, you look with your nose. That was something that was told to me um, get my head around. Uh-huh. Know, point your nose where you're yep. going. Yep. Yeah, I, I think that's so true because how many times are we into the corners and we know we're set up, you know, and we're going around the corner and we're fine, but you still kind of check out, right. you know, hey, what's that or what's my speed yep. or something. I watch uh, Brett Tax from time to time and um, he was talking about cornering and talking about crashes and corners and stuff. And he's like, 99% of the time we're going around a corner one time. That's it. We ride past that corner and we just keep on going, you know, and we may never hit that corner again. So we have one time to do it right, you know, and that was the whole preface of, of the video is just talking about the cornering. But I remember just thinking about that as like, yeah, when I'm out on a long ride, you know, that's absolutely true. 
Is it true just riding around the neighborhood or commuting or whatever? No, we're going to hit those corners time and time mm-hmm. and time and time again. But just thinking about that, it's, it's so true. So you, everything that goes into play with it, you know, setting up correctly, what's, what's your speed for it? You know, um, my grandfather was a big time motorcycle rider and his whole philosophy, he rode like a bat out of hell. So we got to okay. start with that. Okay. Double it and add five. If it's a 30 mile an hour corner, you're doing it at 65. Right. You know, just like, mm, no, not all the time. Yeah. But we can do a 30 mile an hour corner at 40 pretty easy. Yeah. Not even think about it, you know, yeah. but just getting it all set up and then you hit that corner and you're like, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. The, the, the advisory speed, the, the orange, the orange sign that you get before a corner in Oregon, they're really well marked curves yeah. in Oregon. Not so much, not so much in other places. Um, it's just, it's a great guideline. It's like that 30 on there for 30 mile an hour. That's, that's the engineer's way of telling you what the radius of that curb is. Right. And then it's up to you to decide like, okay, so based on my skill level, this bike that I happen to be riding today, right. And how I'm feeling, right. I know I can take that number and I know what that means. I know what that means for my speed when I get to the entrance to that corner. And for some people it's, it's double plus five. Other people it's, that minus five or whatever it's like it's and that's that's totally yeah, yeah. but it's, it's a great measuring ride. stick yeah ride your ride yeah you know and that goes back to the group rides yeah. you know it's always good in a group ride you got to have the experienced guys in front and, and the guy sweeping in the back you know and just know like it's it's like anything you're only as strong as the weakest person right so if somebody's in there is pretty new and they're used to going slow take it slow yeah you know we all want to get there at the same time right yeah, we could spend we could spend a whole hour just talking about group riding sometime. Oh yeah, that would actually yeah. be pretty pretty it's, good. Uh, there's way, there's ways to do that. There's ways to do group rides to kind of minimize the stress that beginners have to deal with, mm-hmm. and to minimize that pressure to keep up. Yeah, uh, there's 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 ways to avoid that that still allow everybody to have a good time. Right, and you've kind of talked about that a couple of times, like when I come back, or that's yeah. for another podcast. Yeah. Uh, you and I, I'm for trying everybody. to set, I'm trying to set the hook. Here, yeah, you know? yeah. So. For for you for you listening, he and I have talked about about making this kind of a reoccurring, reoccurring thing. Whether it's a change of season or maybe laws change or something happens, you know, we we have a, a really good resource here, and I think we're building a good relationship to yeah. come back and you know just kind of our resident expert, if you will, you know. And I, I really appreciate it. And it took a little bit, you know, to kind of get you guys set up and get this planned out and. You went on vacation, and I was out yeah. doing my thing and stuff. But, you know, I think it's been great to come in here, you know, listening to what you have to say. And in little nuggets of knowledge you're throwing out, I'm like, oof, I grabbed that one. You know, so, again, like, I really hope that people that are listening to this really kind of take it to heart because this is a lot different than what we, we've been doing, right? It's been just YouTubers or, you know, guys that just ride, and I just want to know – you know, how'd you get into YouTube? How'd you do this? How'd you do that? And it's been kind of cookie stamped over yeah. here. And this is kind of way different than what we've done Good. so far, you know. Good. And that's really something, like I said, I, I want to do. I want to talk to interesting people. I don't want to talk to just somebody because they're, I ride a motorcycle, so yeah. I can be on there. And no. People who are interesting, people who have a story, people who can educate and bring something, you know, those are kind of the people that I'm looking for. And, Motorcycling brings us together, but I think everybody is so much more than just 
the motorcycle, yeah. the riding, you know, and that was kind of the, the foundation that we started this on. Yeah. You know, so you coming on and, and, and agreeing to do it and the emails going back and forth, it was, it's been wonderful. Good. And, you know, I, I, I really look forward to many more of these. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It'll be, it'll be fun. I'd love, I'd love to come back and serve. This is, uh, when I started, when I, when I, decided to become an instructor way back when I thought I did that because I thought that was like the pinnacle of like motorcycle accomplishment. That's as, that's as good as you can get. Right. Mm -hmm. And now I realize that actually, no, it's, it's actually, it's, it's, it's just, it's a really cool, fun way to make the world a better place. Right. Just talking about this stuff and there's going to be some things that you like, there's going to be some stuff you disagree with. That's totally fine. But as long as we're having this conversation, right, mm -hmm. you're going to be a better writer for it. Right. Maybe a conversation we'll figure out here pretty soon. I know it keeps coming in, going away, coming in, going away is the lane splitting conversation. Yeah. yeah. So we can have fun with that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've uh, been all over the country and seen great examples and horrible <laughs> examples. Yep. I'm like, bro, you shouldn't be doing 70 miles an hour in between cars. Just saying. Yeah. Whatever. So, right. well, with that, okay. it. Do you have any social medias or anything that you want to plug? You know, we, um, yeah, so the, the, the Team Oregon website is it's team-oregon.org. There's a bicycle club that uses teamoregon.org, but anyway. Oh, okay. I brought some stuff for you. Oh, here. heck yeah. Um, Thank you. And so, but no, we have, um, we have a, a Facebook page and Instagram, and I, I, I try to check in. I try to check in on LinkedIn from time to time, and we do some Twitter stuff mostly to announce openings, uh, course openings for beginners who need to get their endorsement. Okay. Um, but my goal behind the Facebook and Instagram is to just kind of have a drumbeat, kind of a constant conversation. So it's a, it's a lot of riding tips. It's like corners, riding gear, bike maintenance, you know, what's going on in Oregon, stuff like that. And so really the, the point is, is to, is to, is to connect riders to ideas and to mm -hmm. connect riders with each other. And so if you want to get, you know, we send out like every couple times a week, you know, uh, some sort of motorcycling tip or thought for the day, that sort of thing to help you be a better rider. Even if you never, ever come to a training course, you can join us there and you can still learn a lot of stuff. That is actually great. And are you the one behind it? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. That's fantastic. I think uh, we'll definitely throw some links up on the description below. If you're watching this on YouTube, if you're watch or listening to this on uh, Spotify, you can't do links over there right now. So go to YouTube and find it, or I'll yep. drop something on Instagram as well. Yep. For sure. So that's just motorcycles and pancakes on the Instagram and the YouTubes. Um, but yeah, man, Pat, All thank right. you so much. It was fun. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Good. We'll do it again. Absolutely.